Aviation Podcast is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Episode 135, the best of 2016, coming up in this episode of the Stuck Mike Avcast. Now here are your co-hosts, Victoria Newville, Sean Moody, Eric Crump, Rick Felty, and Carl Valeri. Happy New Year from all of us here at the Stuck Mike Avcast, and welcome to a special edition of the podcast. In this episode, as we do every year, we compile a show with the best of 2016. The best episodes for the year are based on your feedback and those chosen by our co-hosts. So enjoy the show. But first, a word from our sponsor, AviationCareersPodcast.com. AviationCareersPodcast.com offers scholarships, career coaching, interview preparation, and advice. Go to them at AviationCareersPodcast.com. Now on with the show. Our first pick this year for the best of 2016 is episode 116, Airman Certification Standards Explained by Eric Crump. I'm sure you'll learn something. So let's go ahead and listen to that episode. Eric, I, I tell you, man, this this has been something that has uh, been sprung upon us all of a sudden. I mean, it, it's 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 like you know, gosh, we do, we just found out about this yesterday. Is is that true? <laughs> I think that's probably the most common thing I get. Um, people find out that I'm involved in this thing. People that I haven't talked to in years, like, well, what's going on? This just happened all of a sudden. This happened in three months. Like, how, how are we gonna how are we gonna do this? And actually, this process started over five years ago. Um, and this and, is the Airman Certification Standards process. Yeah, yeah. And we can go through the history if you want to. How we got to, to where we are today. Yeah, um, interesting. But but the ACS is um, actually more than just what we're publishing um, for activation. Private instrument are the ones that are coming out um, in June of 2016. But we've published commercial. We've published um, a draft ATP, and we've published a draft um, uh, authorized instructor. Then you name for the CFI PTS in the Federal Register um, many times, actually, for public comment. Um, and we try to do the best we can to get the word out every time one of these things comes out because we really, really do want the feedback uh, coming back in. Um, it's just it's still really amazing to me. The first time we published in the Federal Register, which was really probably a couple of years ago now, um, we just inundated this, you know, I don't know, five, 400, 500 comments that came in and it was, what is this strange thing? And even at that point, we had been at it for several years. And uh, anyway, so as far as a quick history lesson, um, about five years ago or so, um, if you, some of you may remember this, but SAFE, the Society of Aviation and Flight Educators, held a pilot training reform symposium in Atlanta, Georgia. And I was invited to speak there. At the time, I was the aviation content manager for Glime Publications. And I was invited to come and talk about uh, the knowledge test. And um, 
I don't think anybody's going to be surprised to hear that, you know, the knowledge tests are not viewed as all that useful by most people who are either <laughs> student applicants or flight instructors or pilot examiners, for that matter. Um, and there were many things on the docket, but the knowledge test thing was a big item because just the month previous, the FA had completely rewritten the fundamentals of instruction knowledge test with no warning at all. There was no advance notice. The entire test was rewritten overnight. The industry was not notified that that had happened. And what used to be, if you will, a gimme test where you could walk out of there after 20 minutes of effort with a 90 or higher score um, turned into mass failures where the failure rate exceeded 40 and 50% of people who took the test. And the entire training industry just cried foul and said, look, if you want to change it, that's okay. I mean, that's okay. You can make updates. That's important. But to just completely write the whole thing and to bring in a bunch of what at the time was considered to be really useless questions just for the purpose of making people fail, it was kind of considered like a backhanded, you know, stab in the back kind of thing. And so one of the things that came out of this um, pilot training reform symposium was um, that many FAA um, leaders actually attended this meeting. And one of them is Van Kearns, who runs AFS 600, the Airman Testing and Certification Branch. And Van was actually in my little uh, work group, my little subgroup that we broke off after the first day. And we were trying to make recommendations to the FAA on how knowledge testing could be improved. And it was, it's funny now, and I've reminded Van of this several times after, but Van just kind of sat there and looked at us like, how did I not know that this was, how did I not know how bad it was? <laughs> you know, he was stunned to hear some of the stories that we told about questions that we had gotten on the knowledge test or how useless we in the industry felt the knowledge testing process was. And so sort of what came out of that was an industry effort um, to create um, an aviation rulemaking committee. And the idea was to get a whole bunch of industry people together in a room with the FA leadership and say, okay, we need to improve the knowledge test, and this is how we should do it. And so what we had decided was if you take a check ride today, you're going to use the practical test standards. Everybody does. And that's great that there's a standard that tells you exactly what to expect. But there had never been a knowledge test standard. The FA was basically free to ask any and all questions that they wanted to from any number of source publications without telling anybody what was actually being tested. So the original product was a knowledge test standard to go along with the practical test standard. But then that group kind of got to thinking about it and I was like, well, if we publish these things separately, then they're going to be viewed separately. What would happen if we took this knowledge testing standard, <clears throat> excuse me, and the practical test standard that exists today and glue them together and create one certification standard that really explained the entire process of earning a pilot certificate or rating. And that's where the ACS was born um, from that concept. And at the same time, we were trying to determine, you know, we have been talking about risk management and single pilot resource management and these really important skills. Um, they're important for the airlines and there are two qualified pilots in the airplane. So it must be even more important in a GA environment where there's one pilot and you're basically on your own minus the resources that you have uh, at, at your disposal. So how do we actually train good single pilot resource management skills? But the better question is, how do we test it? How do we find out if a pilot actually 
has those skills that they're going to need to keep themselves out of trouble minus you know actually getting themselves out of trouble when it happens. And so this all sort of happened at the same time. And that's why when you look at the ACS today, you're going to see three basic um, evaluation criteria in each task. Those are knowledge, risk management, and skills. Skills is basically what's in the PTS today. Now, we did do a little bit of revising in terms of consolidating duplicated things that were listed in multiple tasks, um, cleaning up some of the clutter that just kind of got added to the PTS over the years. But we didn't change the standards. This is a very important point. point. Um, plus or minus altitudes, plus or minus distance, plus or minus airspeeds, all of the standards remained exactly the same. And that's the skill portion. Knowledge is that thing that was always missing. That, that explains for each task in the certification standard, this is what you need to know and what level you need to know that information. With that standard, the FA can then create good, valid, effective knowledge test questions on the appropriate content at the appropriate knowledge level for each task in the certification standard. Instructors can brief their students before they go for the oral portion of the practice practical test, knowing again exactly which areas of knowledge need to be mastered and to what level they need to be known. Um, and so that's that's where the knowledge piece comes in. And then risk management, if you've if you've thumbed through a PTS lately, I mean, most people just skip the introduction altogether. Nobody reads the instructions. Um, but in the introduction to the PTS, you're going to find special emphasis areas. In some PTSs, that list has grown as far as 17 items. Now, these are special emphasis items that a pilot examiner is supposed to be testing on throughout the entire practical test. But how and where and when, right? They're supposed to be tested on, but they're kind of disassociated from the tasks, and then a couple of years ago, the FA went and added the six single pilot resource management tasks that we now know and love to the introduction to the PTS, which is great. It was in there, but it wasn't really spelled out on how those things were supposed to be applied to the actual tasks we were going to complete, either on the ground or in the airplane. And so the risk management section takes all of that stuff and puts it in the task where it's appropriate. So it makes one holistic testing standard that doesn't just focus on skills or knowledge or risk management, but does it the way that logically makes sense, which is all together at the same time. And that's your big history lesson. Well, that, you know, Eric, thanks for that wonderful background there. It, it actually leads to many more questions. Uh, what's interesting is I, I've looked at the ACS and uh, when you were talking, one of the things that I said to myself is, how is this all tied together? Uh, we'll have a link, by the way, on the website to show you that. And that that actually, it's very intuitive and it's fairly simple. Uh, when you actually look at this new ACS, you know where to look instead of having all these different reference documents, like you said, there are specific places to look. So I think that's a real, that that's awesome. That's key. I think in this whole process is the, is the ability to actually find that information that I need to be able to, to relate it to this actual PTS or ACS, I should say. Mm -hmm. Russ, you had a question. Yeah, Eric, uh, you had mentioned that there have been no change in the uh, standards in the, for the maneuvers and such. Are any of the maneuvers or any, anything else of substantial of that nature going to be changing? Well, you know, I, I would say yes, because if you, for example, if you open up a private pilot or really any other PTS today, you're going to find runway incursion avoidance. Um, and that was a special emphasis item that was so important to the FAA that it just kind of got added into the PTS. 
I'm not saying runway incursion avoidance isn't important, by the way, but it just it, it was a duplicated task because most of that stuff was already covered in taxing, for example, or airport markings and, and lighting, uh, for example. So what we did was to go through and clean out the duplication. So as the years went on, more and more material just got added to the, P- the PTS, and it was never really um, streamlined or made efficient. Just more and more stuff got added. So we did go in and clean that up, I, I would say that. Um, but in terms of adding new tasks that weren't previously evaluated, no, we didn't do that. And getting rid of tasks altogether, um, we we didn't technically do that, but we did consolidate some of those tasks together that really shouldn't have been separated in the first place. Again, just to try to make it a more logical, straightforward process. Sure. Yeah. Cleaning up some of that was certainly useful. I'm glad you did. I've seen a, some examples of it from a couple of years ago. I'd, I'd be interested to see how closely the uh, final versions look to what was back then. But other questions. So let's say I have a, or let's say I am a student right now, either a private pilot or uh, an instrument uh, rating student, and you can mm-hmm. talk about differences between the two if 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 you need to. Uh, so I, let's say I started training, you know, this week, right? Mm-hmm. How, if at all, is this change in standards going to affect me if I don't have my check ride till August? That's a very good question. Um, so the, the ACS is the final ACS for private instrument will get published on the FA's website. Um, we're, we're looking at mid-April um, to give a 60-day lead time for pilot examiners, instructors, students, whatever, to get familiar with it. However, whatever date that is in June that that document becomes effective, and to be honest with you, I don't know. We don't know exactly what that date is yet. But when that date is decided and published on the FA's website – Every certification activity for private instrument after that date will be with the ACS. Um, so if you're starting a course of training now and you want to do your certification under the PTS, then you need to get that done before June of 2016. But I would say one thing to tag on to that. There are a lot of people who I think are kind of really concerned about, well, the whole system is changing And we'll get into prototyping in a minute and why we did that and why that was so important. But what we learned from prototyping is that um, an ACS certification activity and a PTS certification activity are not fundamentally different. Um, There is no real difference in the way that the activity is conducted. If anything, the ACS is an improved version of the PTS that just gives you more information. It won't fundamentally change your certification uh, activity at all, actually. Um, And one of the questions I get asked a lot, too, is, well, you know, this document's huge because it's got all this content in it. It's going to be an eight-hour practical test, and it's it's not at all. Um, And we know that because we've prototyped the thing um, for a year and a half. So we we know that that's not going to be the case. And again, this comes down to reading the instructions. But the introduction is fairly clear that unless the ACS specifies otherwise, um, when you look at a task, All of the skills are required, which that was the case today if you look at the PTS, one knowledge task and one risk management task for each task in the ACS is required. Now, in some cases, additional uh, things beyond just one may be required, and the instructions in the the ACS explain that very clearly. But what you're going to find is that instead of actually making the check ride longer, what we found was that either the check ride was or the oral portion was the same length or it was actually shorter 
because it provided pilot examiners a much more clear and detailed approach to asking questions and really zoning down into not just what the applicant needs to know, but maybe even the more important part, at what level they need to know it. Because the questions I'm going to ask a commercial applicant, for example, about um, uh, weather planning or uh, time, fuel, and distance are going to be asked at a different level than I would ask out of a private applicant. Do both people need to know how to do it? Yes. Do Would I expect that their knowledge of the process or their ability to think outside the box would be different? Well, of course, because one has more experience than the other. And so the ACS kind of allows for that, and it explains it in, in, in I think, really, really clear terms that should actually make our certification activities much more efficient. I, I would see a great advantage, actually, for people to just start your training now. That's fine. Yeah, but it, you might it, actually find out that the certification activity is better for you if you wait and just go ahead and take it with the ACS in June. Yeah, it almost sounds like uh, regardless of when they take the check, I mean, if, if a guy can pass the, the check ride the day before it goes into effect, they should be able to pass it the day after it goes into effect, right? I mean, the check exactly. ride is not going to substantially change. It's just the preparation for it and possibly uh, some of the questioning on it. It sounds like what you're talking about, Eric. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, great. It also sounds like, you know, I, I know a lot of people who are preparing for CFIs go through the PTS and create their, you know, CFI binders based on the PTS. Uh, mm -hmm. how, how is this for the CFI as far as changes go, or is it just negligible? Well, that's, that's an interesting question. Maybe we need to get some of my uh, CFI applicants this semester on that stuck my gap cast to tell you what their experience is, because they're doing that right now. They're building lesson plans, and that's part of the exercise is to build this lesson plan from the PTS and then build it again from the ACS, and uh, hopefully, hopefully they're not listening to this particular episode. Um, <laughs> but what they're going to find is that it doesn't change the lesson plan. It just doesn't. It doesn't appreciably change um, the lesson planning process at all. And it, it actually, in fact, it probably makes it again just like the certification test more efficient for the CFI. You know, Eric, you had mentioned that uh, this is not going to fundamentally change the process. Mm -hmm. The, the, the thing that I would like to know, and this is a question I get often, is if, if you were to take a percentage, and this might be tough for you to answer, if you were to say that there is a percentage change in the new ACS compared to the old PTS, would it be, say, 5%, possibly 10% uh, in, in the tasks involved or even lower than that? So we're not talking about the addition of the new no. knowledge and risk management stuff, Correct. just in terms of just what was in the PTS, how much changed. Exactly. Um, well, the introduction changed significantly, like I said before, because all that disjointed risk management stuff on uh, special emphasis areas and single pilot resource management is now integrated into the ACS. Um, but as far as the actual tasks themselves, I, I would shoot it somewhere in the 5% region. Again, we didn't take anything out. We didn't add anything in. We consolidated a lot of stuff, um, but ultimately, it just it was not an appreciable change in in terms of the skill content. Right. So, and, and this is important. I, I know I won't hold you to that number, but I'm sure you're going to get quoted on on that number of a five percent in the future. And, and please, oh no, that's if you're listening. fine. <laughs> I, I honestly have not even thought it's, about it in that context before. And, and it's a um, guesstimate. But so. I have – well, yeah, it's a guesstimate because I don't really even think about it in those kind of terms. I can tell you from talking to DPEs who were part of our prototyping effort, the difference in making a plan of action 
to conduct the certification test from PTS to ACS did not change. Their approach to building their plan of action was exactly the same. And most of them, really the only thing they had to change was making sure they had uh, covered all the required knowledge and risk management tasks, which were new. Um, and that was, that was the extent of the change. But again, most of them found that to be an actual uh, useful exercise because it was a way to more focus uh, the oral portion of their practical test. Interesting. Uh, Tom, I think you had a question. Yeah, and, and you know, it, it, it actually fed right into what he was just talking about, about um, an examiner. If, uh, if, if the new ACS was going to put the onus on the examiner to create a different um, a type of exam, and uh, was it going to be more difficult or easier? Or And I think he just answered a, a good part of that, you know. So, Eric, that's, that's kind of what my question was, um, you know, how, how much of the onus is on the examiner to uh, change the way that they're doing um, exams now? Well, we're okay if I'm blunt, right? Everybody's sure. okay if I give a blunt answer. <laughs> okay, so if if you're a flight instructor and you're listening to this, and you send your applicants today to good qualified DPEs who give a good, fair, comprehensive practical test, and you're already teaching risk management, which you should have been doing anyway, then there's there is no difference. If you are sending your students to the guy that you can pay him an extra hundred bucks and it's a guaranteed pass, your life is going to change significantly. Um, if, if you were a DPE and you're doing a good, valid check ride today, nothing bad happens to you at all. Actually, again, it's probably an easier process in the new way of doing this than it is today. But if you're one of those people who is just what's the minimum I can do and still get paid, then, then yeah, that's going to be a pretty significant change for you um, yeah, I mean, if you want to keep your designation. And the point was not to make life hard. The point is we're certifying people to go operate in the NAS with people in the airplane and with a whole lot of people underneath them. We want to know. I think our industry as a whole wants to know that those people are not only – you know, able to accomplish a skill in the airplane, which is great, by the way, but that they actually understand what they're doing and that they've considered all the possible risks associated with that operation and they've planned for them accordingly. And I don't think that's really an unreasonable expectation. No, not at all. And, and you know, to the extent of my question without too much detail is my um, I've, I've flown with different examiners and both conducted their exams differently. So it mm -hmm. was apparent that there was some leeway in how they interpreted the PTS and how they were going to move forward with it. And and I guess that's what my question was more geared towards is, is this going to sure. kind of rope that in a little bit more? In other words, put that onus on the on the DPE to put, go ahead and, uh, you know, follow this more concisely and make a more consistent test from from examiner to examiner. Well, I don't think we're going to get to the place where the FA is individually approving plans of action. I, I don't think that the examiners want that. I don't think the FA wants to have to deal with that either. Um, and to be honest, I think there's, you know, there's value in the experience and the background that DPs bring to that equation. Um, and yes, at the end of the day, there's going to be some subjectivity in the way the practical test is is uh, structured. But at the end of the day, the certification, the you know the the process where you make that sad or unsat decision should be based on the same set of standards. Um, but hearing some uh, concern from the DPE community, and I will mention, by the way, that we have seven DPEs on our working group um, who have been working on this project for a really long time. We have a very, very diverse group 
of people uh, from basically every aspect of the aviation industry you can imagine. Um, you know, and we asked them, so how do we quiet the fears among the DPE community about what this is going to be? And one of the things they recommended was maybe we should set up our own little uh, subgroup to build sample plans of action based on the ACS to, that we can then publish, make available for free for DPEs and, for that matter, for flight instructors and applicants to look at. This is an example. It doesn't mean you have to follow it exactly, but this is an example of how one might make a plan of action for an ACS certification test. Um, and I think that will be extremely useful, and that work is um, slated to be done around the same time that the ACS gets published uh, to the FA's website. So hopefully those sample plans of action will be available as well with recommendations and best practices for DPEs. You know, Eric, going going back to what you touched on there with the and Tom said with the risk management scenario based training, uh, I've I've gotten some feedback from people asking, you know, that they're like, well, this is what we've done already. This is what's been included in the right. exam already. So, what what truly is changing? Um, and and it's 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 somewhat hard. It was it was somewhat difficult for me to actually say that or, or to answer that question. I said, well, well, stay tuned because we're going to be talking to Eric Crump about this. How do I answer that question? Well, I think that goes back to my previous mm -hmm. answer a minute ago. If you were given a good uh, practical test, if you were providing good holistic flight instruction, nothing really changes for you. What we've done is just put in writing what we've been saying for years, um, where the PTS left so much room open for – I mean, and, and there are DPEs, and you know, I, I know them, and actually – can't think of any, well, I can't think of one DPE that works with our program who does not do a, a holistic scenario-based uh, approach toward the practical test, regardless of the certificate or rating. Because today, in FA Order 8900, which governs a lot of things, but specifically it also governs how a DPE gives a practical test, it specifically states that that evaluation should be done using a scenario or multiple scenarios as the case warrants. Now, there are still people who probably aren't doing that until they get audited by the FAA. Maybe they try to put together a scenario. But that nothing, nothing changed because of the ACS. That was already a requirement. What we're trying to do with the ACS is to make it easier for people to accommodate the requirement that already existed. So to answer your question, yes, it, that's the way it is today. And it's not so much that anything is changing so much as that we're writing it down. And we're saying, okay, we said it was a good idea to do this, but now here's an actual codified standard that says you have to do it this way. Interesting. You know, it, and let's back up, too, to make the people more comfortable. I, you know, I stood in front of a crowd of people that really kind of stared at me with, with needles, you know, I think in their eyes ready to, to, to shoot me when I mentioned the, the ACS, and I thought this was a great thing. Uh, one of the concerns I heard from the crowd was this, uh, and you, you alluded to it, but I want you to expand on it and get a little more granular. You had mentioned that there are people from many different and diverse backgrounds. I know you, and I know DPEs. Who else was involved in the FA? Who else was involved in this process? Give us and, and tell us how the, the, the scale of the different volunteers and people involved. Don't quote me on this number either, but I think our working group right now is somewhere between 32 and 35 members mm -hmm. around in that region. Um, and of that membership, the vast majority is industry, um, but there is a lot of FA participation as well. And this, this is not 
like, you know, the, the guy at the FAA who, you know, puts paper in a folder and he didn't have anything else to do. So they sent him to a meeting. It, it, it's not, it, it is not that at all. Actually, we have, um, AFS three, uh, Susan Parson is the FAA chair of the group. Um, so uh, Susan is the uh, editor of FA safety briefing magazine and a huge proponent of this effort and has been its cheerleader really since it got off the ground. She too was at the safe pilot training reform symposium back in 2011, um, and was there at the very beginning of this whole process. Um, we've had John Duncan, um, uh, from flight standards, the, the head of flight standards to come and talk to us and to ask us questions and to say, listen, um, all of my, my leaders are here. Tell me what you need. And if it's not getting done, I want to fix that. Um, we have the head of the GA and commercial division, AFS 800. Jim Viola is on our group. Van Kearns, who I mentioned before, is in our group. People from AFS 200 dealing with uh, the airlines, 400 dealing with uh, technical. Uh, they, they do a lot of really interesting stuff that I don't understand, but um, <laughs> it's, it's really deep. Um, but it's every branch of the FA that deals with pilot certification. And even though um, the 200 group is really mostly interested, I guess, in the ATP certification standard, they're still there participating, contributing also to um, even you know private instrument, uh, commercial, things like that. Um, and then when it comes to the industry side, you've got, I want to say, seven uh, colleges and universities with flight programs. You've got a large DPE population, um, a couple of researchers. We've got um, aviation attorneys, flight instructors, corporate pilots, um, goodness gracious, uh, training industry people. Um, Jackie Spanitz from ASA is there. John King and Mac McWhinney from King Schools are there. Um, it, and I'm missing people. Uh, our industry chair is Dave Ord from AOPA. So Dave and Susan kind of co-chair our group from both the industry and the FA side. And I can tell you five years ago when this started, if you had told me that we are going to publish an ACS and that we're, we, by that point we would have already seen market improvements in the uh, pilot knowledge tests, I probably would have laughed at you because I didn't believe that that was really possible at that time. I had some hope that maybe we could make some kind of difference, some kind of change. But I drank the Kool-Aid really early in and I saw how this group of people from all these diverse backgrounds and from two sides of, of an aisle that rarely spoke to each other before five years ago um, from industry and the FA where we kind of did our own things in our own corners and you know, don't come on my turf, I won't go on yours. We're at the table and we're making these changes together. Um, and that's a, that's a huge philosophy change, not only in building the standard itself, but also in just what we're doing as a community and how we're trying to improve our national airspace system and really take ownership in that process. So making the person more comfortable that's listening to us, that's going for their check ride or a possible future check ride, there, there's somebody there that's on our side and, and then is working in conjunction with the folks that are actually on the other side, quote-unquote, the FAA and, and the people implementing this. There is, there is some cohesion here. There's, there's a, a great work group that's placed together, and I'm glad that our voices are being heard, uh, and I'm, I'm glad that the people listening right now, your voice is being heard. Which is is terrific, you know, and that that makes me and that wouldn't have been possible five years ago. There yes. was no method by which you could say, "I don't like this. You need to improve it." Well, you could send an email 
that just wouldn't get answered, or you could call and leave a message that wouldn't get returned. And that's really where we were. That, I mean, that, that was the, the state of FA and industry when it came to pilot testing five years ago. And it's, it's incredible to see. And we talk about this when we have our meetings uh, four times a year in D.C., and then we meet weekly by Telcon in our subgroups. Um, but we talk about this all the time. I just wish that every single pilot and potential pilot in the United States could come to one of those meetings and actually see what goes on there. I mean, you guys are listening. You kind of have to take my word for it. And I'm, I mean, listen to this Southern Alabama accent. You can trust this. Um, but I mean, you kind of just have to take my word for it. But to be there and to see that and to see the dialogue and how it goes on, um, it's it's actually really impressive. And I could not be prouder to work with the group that we have to do what we're doing. Yeah, and I love the vision of SAFE, uh, getting involved with this process in the beginning, and uh, and the chairman of SAFE at the time. I think he did a great job pushing this forward. You know, yeah, I, Doug is still uh, very active and still works on our group um, and is at every single one of our meetings. Um, even though he's self-sponsored, he gets himself there, and uh, he participates um, as, a, as a DPE and also as a flight instructor on our group. Um, and uh, both Safe and Naffy are both still very active yeah. in our group from since from day one. Yeah, and that's that's great. I think Doug, Doug's done a great job, along with everybody else, uh, done some really heavy heavy lifting. Right, Russ, you had a question. Yeah, Eric, back to a little bit more uh, detail uh, oriented, I guess here. So all of us know how the the PTS standards work and the uh, you know the expectations that are required of you know for. What each maneuver and the 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 plus or minus 100 feet and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. What will the ACS have in there? You touched on it briefly before, but as far as knowledge items, can you give a like a good example? Maybe, and I'm sure you know, maybe you know, stalls or something like that, or aerodynamics. Can you give a good example of of what might change in the ACS as far as including more, like you said, more stuff on for the knowledge part of the uh, the test. Sure. Okay. So let's use, we, we talked about runway incursion avoidance before. So that one's the first thing that popped into my head. So, and I do not have the ACS open in front of me, so don't quote sure, me but on just, the content. Yeah, just, just, <laughs> but yeah, any kind of example, an example you can get, give there. So a knowledge item for uh, runway incursion avoidance uh, might be um, correctly interprets a, um, a an airport diagram to determine um, expected versus assigned clearance routes. Okay, so the ability to know, first of all, what is an airport diagram? How do I get one? How do I use one? What is it telling me? And to think about it in advance, because that's one of the things that, you know, we, we, we hopefully we're explaining to people. Don't just wait for ATC to give you an instruction. Think about it. Look at it. What are you expecting to hear? So then when ATC says, uh, Charlie Delta, uh, hold short runway 27, you're like, but I'm on the south side. Charlie's on the north. Do they know where I am? So instead of just accepting that clearance and just tootling on down the taxiway, if you looked at the diagram before, you'd know that doesn't make any sense. And this is especially true at an unfamiliar airport. And then a risk management item, which that sort of dovetails into both categories, but a risk management item um, along those lines might be um, that um, given a, um, a, a distraction in the cockpit, um, how is the student going to respond to um, maybe programming the GPS uh, while taxing? It's a bad idea. You might run off the taxiway. You might cross a runway. There's all kinds of things that could come up with that. So 
this is where, again, one of those single pilot resource management tasks, automation management would come up and say, hey, this isn't the right time to program the GPS. Let's wait until the airplane is stopped, right? So this is this says, hey, instructor, make sure that you teach this behavior, this attitude to your student. And then, hey, examiner, when you're conducting a check ride, make sure that you're looking for this, not just putting automation management in the introduction and hoping people remember it, but it's listed right there in the task. Like, hey, be looking for automation distractions that can occur while somebody's messing with flight instead of looking where they're going or missing a radio call. If that, maybe that answers the question. No, I think that does a great job answering the question. It sounds like it's going to be well, both both a lot more specific and off a lot more more guidance towards, like you said, that what, what they're looking for in a test, but also, you know, what the the flight instructor is can be expected to teach to the the student, which is which is nice because as you mentioned before, you know, just it just said. Uh, you know, Roman incursions. Well, that that was it. That was right. that was the whole topic in the PTS. Well, that you know, there's a, there's a, a a million interpretations of what that involves. Well, make, go ahead and make sure you hold short. You know, all the way up to uh, you know, like you talked about reading back, crossing inst- instructions, and all that kind of stuff. So, I think that uh, this this definitely sounds like a, a big step in the right direction to me. We actually joked about this because in education, we always talk about how it's horrible when you have to teach the test, and nobody wants to teach the test to their students. They want to teach them to think creatively so that they can solve the questions on the test. We joke about it because in the ACS, it's okay to teach the test. It's actually a really good idea because this document bridges that gap, which the the gulf of training, the FA has always left gap in and just said, listen, flight instructors, flight schools, you guys just figure out whatever you want to teach them. We don't care. But this is how we're going to evaluate them. And the FA was only evaluating them on their skill, which is great. But given enough time, my eight-year-old can fly an airplane. It's not that hard. I mean, the, the actual physical skill of flying is not that big a deal. It's, it's all those decisions that you're making at light speed. Uh, when you're you know, in the soup uh, right at minimum fuel, shooting an approach into an airport you've never been in before, that's when – the skill to keep the airplane upright is dandy, but your ability to keep control of the situation, use all the available resources, that's really important. And that's where that becomes really, really critical. So in this situation, the ACS actually bridges that gulf between testing into training. Now, it doesn't say, you know, hey, use this and build your lesson plans or your syllabus to look like, well, no, it's still a testing document. It's a certification standard. But a good certification standard should be able to be used rather effectively in creating a training course. And if you try to do that with the PTS today, you would miss a ton of things that you should be testing. I'm sorry, you should be training on that just aren't in the PTS today that will be in the ACS. That's interesting, Art, because, you know, bridging that gulf, you know, between the two, the where, gosh, how did we come to this? I mean, how did you get to this point where you could you could actually put some more granularity and some uh, actual flesh to the ACS? You must have had groups, and I think you alluded to this before, uh, I think what you called prototyping. Uh, mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit more about that to get us, and I'm assuming you use that tool to get to actual specific tasks and examples within the ACS. Sure. Okay, so... Imagine this situation. So you're going to design a new model of a car. 
today. Now, the car already exists. It's existed for many years. Pretty much everybody knows what a car is and what you can do with it. But you're setting out to build a better car. Okay, So you go to your engineers and you say, okay, design me a car. They design it. You look at it. You go, yep, you know what? That car is exactly what I want. You go to your technicians and you say, this is the electronic package and the capabilities I want in the car. And they come back to you with a spec sheet and you're like, yep, that's exactly what I wanted in the car. And then you go and you talk to your mechanics and you're like, okay, this is the engine I want. This is how much power I want. This is a zero to 60 acceleration that I want. And your uh, mechanics come back and they say, okay, this is what we can do. This is what it's going to cost. And you say, you know what? That's a great, put that in my car. And then this car rolls off the assembly line. You're thrilled with it and you take it out to a dealership and sell it. That just, that's not how it works. That in addition to regulation that prohibits that from happening for really obvious reasons, you can't go from an idea to selling that to a human being without testing it, probably market doing some market research to make sure that the design you picked and the colors you chose are the thing that's going to sell the car. Well, with the PTS, since its birth, that's what we did. The FA would say, okay, we need to make a change to the PTS. It should say this. Let's push it out. It goes on the FA's website. You may have some lead time to know that, or you may show up at a check ride and the DP goes, oh, you have the old version of the PTS. This updated last week. Oh, well, I didn't know. <laughs> and then if you think it's, it's, it's silly because we wouldn't accept that in any other aspect of our life. Um, it's like building a house without having the building inspector come in and check it out first. It's just, it's not done. So when we built the ACS, we said, listen, let's actually put this thing out in the field. And first of all, make sure that it actually works and people can use it and understand it. And two, let's make sure that it does what we think it's going to do. And so we came up with this brand new, pro this brand new process called prototyping. It's like it's never been done before. This <laughs> is like, wow, it's huge, earth-shattering idea. We should we should prototype the ACS. But that's exactly what we did. And and effectively what that entailed was a three-step process, which we're finishing up the third stage of now. Um, the first stage of the prototype was a very limited group, um, six or seven students in a very captive audience. And the entire point of that was to put the thing in an instructor's hand. Um, to get some DPEs who were trained on what the ACS was and say, guys, use this and tell us if it works. That was the whole point, just very limited uh, involvement. And we found out that it did work and actually it worked better than we expected it to, and we got a lot of great feedback. Awesome. Okay, so we moved into phase two. And phase two was based in the Orlando FISDO here in Florida. And don't quote me, I think it was six, seven flight schools all over the district. Um 40, 50 or so applicants, um, and then a corresponding number of flight instructors and DPEs who were briefed on the ACS. But understand this, we didn't tell them how to use the ACS. All we did was to tell them how prototyping works. Because the ACS, what you're getting in June is just the document. But the real beauty, the amazing quality of the ACS is what we call test question coding. So right now, if you go take an FA knowledge test, you get your test report back, and it's going to say PLT and a three-digit number. You look in a reference guide, and it's some obscure statement like determine pressure altitude or something like that, which doesn't tell you anything, by the way. It doesn't tell you where to go learn more about that. It just says determine pressure altitude. 
Okay. That could be a performance chart. That could be weather. It could be anything. There's no way to know. So test question coding, and if you look at an ACS document, which I encourage all of you to go do, you'll notice in the right column of every task, there's a big long code over there. And what that does is code each element in every task to a very specific item. Questions in the FA test database are already getting those codes assigned to them. And the FA is in the process right now of contracting a third-party vendor to start managing its knowledge test for it. So instead of FA inspectors writing knowledge test questions, now you have a professional test management company who will write the questions, board the questions, maintain the questions, so that our, again, which this goes back to where we started five years ago, which is improving the quality of our knowledge test, so that we can make responsive changes. So if there is a rush of accidents because people aren't doing takeoff uh, distance calculations, We'll know that because the test report will specifically will drill down to the actual thing people are missing on knowledge tests. We'll see a corresponding uh, uptick in accident data. And then we can go in and we can change the standard if we need to. We can change the handbooks, which are all coded to those same codes now. And we can also go in and get information out to the industry and say, here's a problem and here are some suggestions on how we might fix it. So that's step two. What you're getting right now, what you're going to get in June, is the ACS document itself. But the prototype participants got to take the specific ACS knowledge test. So in addition to getting their little test report that you all get today, they also got a hand-graded uh, test report from Oklahoma City that actually listed those special ACS codes. So then the instructors were able to go in and not just, well, I don't know, it says something about pressure altitude. Do you understand pressure altitude? Yeah. Okay, well, let's go take a check ride. This let the instructors go into an enormous level of detail in a post-knowledge test debrief to get the student ready for the oral exam. And what we found out in phase two when we put this process together was that applicants were more prepared to go into the practical test, instructors felt more confident in their applicants' performance, and every single one of the DPEs in that prototype effort said, oh my goodness, these people actually know what to expect when they come in for the practical test. They were able to ready themselves. They were ready. They were able to remediate their missing knowledge from the knowledge test because they were actually told what to study. So that's phase two, uh, if you will, of the ACS rollout process. That's still down the road, but it's coming. We just saw that the ACS was such a huge improvement. We didn't want to wait for that to be done. We wanted to go ahead and get it out in the field. And what we're doing right now is phase three. And phase three is the instrument ACS. Phase one and phase two were private. And this prototype is based in the Orlando FISDO here in Florida and also in the Seattle FISDO out in Washington State. Because what we wanted to do in phase three, because the Orlando people had already seen private before, we wanted to introduce instrument, because it's a different animal, to a whole different group of people and say, okay, well, we had success in Orlando. But if we just take the instrument ACS and give it to a school, and say, here's what the prototyping process is going to be. This is how we're going to do this hand-graded knowledge test thing. Go forth and prosper. Could they do it? Could they pick up the ACS and either, one, just continue as they were with training or be able to improve their training and testing process? This prototype effort ends in uh, May. And we're right around the, the doorway from getting that done. And I, I, I can't tell you how happy we are as a as a prototype and implementation group 
to get these surveys, these anonymous surveys we're getting back from the prototype participants saying, this is so much better. Why didn't we always do it this way? Which is the same question that you guys asked before. Aren't we already doing this now? Well, yeah, some people are, but this will enable us all to do it. And then when this test question coding thing becomes a reality, then our ability to prepare for the knowledge test is not some meaningless roadblock that we have to get over, but it actually will help us prepare for the things we need to know and consider before we go and fly an airplane by ourselves. The test question coding, I think, is incredibly exciting. When I first saw it, I was like, wow, why didn't we do this before? I know, right? It's like it's, It seems so logical, but, but it's because industry was never involved in that process. Industry did training and the FA did testing. And the FA didn't – it's not that they didn't care. It's that they didn't know it was important because they never asked. <laughs> you know, And so when we get together and we say, okay, so how can we do both of these things? And how can we as an industry take more interest in the testing process because we need to understand it? And you as the FA, how can you take more interest and buy-in into the training process because you need to know how pilots are being trained? You need, it's not just about the testing process. You need to be involved in training too. And it was like this aha moment, like, why weren't we doing that to begin with? And that's a very valid question. I don't know the answer to it. I'm just glad that we're doing it now. One of the concerns I have with the new ACS, and I'm sure this is uh, going forward with the prototyping, it's going to stay. Uh, prototyping will be here to stay, I should say. But what do we do when we come upon a the, the scope of the exam and we come upon something that should be included, such as NDB approaches. Say we decide to go back to using NDBs. No, better yet, let's say we're going to start using GLS approaches, and that's going to be part of the, the practical test or ACS for the private. How does that become implemented in this process? How do we move that into the ACS? So today, if something like that happened, um, it would just magically appear in the PTS. And then Eventually, maybe a year or two from now, when the uh, handbooks, the FA handbooks are updated, then that information would show up in the handbook. So there'd be this huge gap of time between when it was implemented in testing and when the FA provided information on what they wanted you to learn. The way this is going to work going forward is that this working group serves as kind of a filter to all of those requests. And we've had actually, we've sort of, I guess, if you will, prototyped that process a lot just going along because in the in the five years that we've been doing this, as you can imagine, a lot of hot button issues have come up. And the the instinct is still to, well, we gotta do this right now. We gotta change everything. But our group says, well, hold on a second. That's probably very important. However, let's consider what the downrange or downstream impacts are going to be, and let's plan accordingly. So instead of having this huge information gulf between when it's tested and when we explain it, let's make sure that those things roll out simultaneously. Let's make sure that we have a process where we can get to all of the industry stakeholders that we need to get to and tell them, this is what's changing this is why it's changing, that being very important, by the way, and what you should do about it. Because right now, we may, maybe we communicate what is changing, and we don't really do a great job of that. What we want to do is not only tell everybody what is happening, we want to explain why. This is why we're making the change. So if you haven't already, I highly advise all of you to go to the AFS 630 website, you can just type in AFS630 in your search box. 
It'll take you straight there. That's the um, airman testing and certification page at the FAA. From there, you'll be able to access sample ACS documents. You'll be able to access the frequently asked questions document. And this is not something we built in a, in a vacuum. Every single question in that document is a question that got asked to us. And every time a new question gets asked, we throw it in that document. I guarantee you, if you will take the time to read the frequently asked questions, 99.9% of all of your questions should be answered in there because we've gotten a lot of questions as we've gone forward. What you're also going to see there is an ability to subscribe where you can put in your email address. Every time 630 changes something, whether the uh, figure supplements for the knowledge test get updated or new questions roll out to the testing centers or new sample tests are uploaded or new handbooks come out, you can now get an email directly from AFS 630 the moment that happens. You don't have to wait to read about it in the aviation media. You don't have to wait until your student is suddenly surprised when they show up at a check ride unawares. You'll be able to be notified immediately when those things happen. And that's a huge improvement in our communication process. Um, and that's just one small thing, that, a really critical first step in making sure that we get the information out. And then there's building the why making sure that we not only tell people what the change is, but why it's being done. Because even when someone doesn't agree with your change, if you can actually explain your position and why you're doing it, most people will get to the point of being able to accept it. They might not agree with it, but they'll be able to accept it. If you just say, this is what we're changing, deal with it, that doesn't endear anybody to you. And so that's, that's a huge step forward too. And then the third part of that is, what do you need to do about it? So here's this information. Here's why we're giving you this information, and here's what you need to do. Um, steps you need to take, things you need to consider, things you need to be prepared for. Um, and, uh, and I think that's, that is the critical component of this process moving forward is to making sure that that communication stream is wide open and that information flows in both directions. Outstanding. Thanks, Eric. You know, we, we have just one more t time for one more question here. Uh, Tom, go ahead. What, you had a question. Yeah, Eric, and, and this is like awesome information, and it looks like I've got a lot to learn here and uh, moving forward, and I'm, I'm looking forward to reading and catching up with all this stuff. So, um, you know, from our standpoint, you know, while I got you here, I want to know what uh, the inside scoop is, if we have, if, if there are any anticipated difficulties, you know, during this transition for students or for CFIs, you know, uh, you guys in, anticipating, what, what are the concerns that you have from the group standpoint um, as we move forward with the ACS? To be honest with you, Tom, my greatest fear is that there's going to be somebody who doesn't know and that just is not aware <laughs> that literally shows up on a check ride the day after the ACS becomes effective. The instructor didn't know, the student didn't know, and they walk in and it's like, what is this? And the student panics. I'm, we are trying to do everything possible to prevent that from happening. And part of our implementation process was to actually build a communication plan. How is it that we need to get information out to stakeholders? And it's actually, it's funny when the article that Carl originally pointed to was an article from AOPA, that article was written as part of our communication plan. That was, that was in our list of things that we were going to do. Um, and actually, it's, it's odd because Carl said, hey, would you come on and be interviewed about the ACES? Well, actually, that checks a box on my implementation plan. So, yes, <laughs> I would be happy to do that. And so all of our working group, we're not relying just on the FA to do it, and they're doing a great job of it. But each of us as industry stakeholders, we're also going out to our local stakeholder groups and saying, 
here, you know, and Carl's talked about FA safety meetings. That's a huge piece on our implementation plan. Um, through our FA uh, 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 industry contacts, we've been able to get to all of the safety program managers at all of the FISDOs so that we can make sure that they understand what this is and how to communicate with their safety reps in their region to make sure that the ACS information is getting out at pilot seminars, making sure it gets into the aviation media, so on and so forth. The, the, my, my biggest fear, my, my 90%, you know, if, if there's anything that's going to go wrong, the problem is going to be somebody didn't know. And we are really, really adamant about making sure that if that happens – it is such a random, crazy occurrence that there was no way we could have possibly planned for it. Like, I lived in the jungle until the day before my check ride, and I didn't have internet access and no contact to the outside world. Well, then there's no way you're going to know. But, but hopefully, maybe we need to invest in sky riding or something. I don't know. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, so that, that's my biggest fear. And I think most of the other issues we've already talked about uh, tonight in our conversation. The check ride's going to get longer. No, it's really not. And, and I can say that because we've observed 30 check rides. It doesn't get longer. It just doesn't. If anything, it gets shorter because it's a more focused, efficient use of everybody's time. Um, it's going to be a harder check ride. That's just not true. The standard is really the same that it was. All we did was just we made it an open book test where before you knew what you were going to do when you got in the airplane, but you had no idea really what the examiner was going to ask you on the ground. Now you do. It's an open book exam. And so I, I think that actually makes the process easier, not more difficult. Um, and then if you read the, the FAQ document, you'll see a bunch of just – some of them are really valid issues and some of them are really off-the-wall things. Like you know, why does the FA always want to change stuff? Um, if it's not broken, why fix it? Um, well, I mean I guess everybody has a philosophical point there. But for, for me, I wouldn't say it's necessarily broken, but it's not as good as it can be. And if something could be improved, why wouldn't you improve it? I guess it's just, is the glass half empty or half full? I mean, does the PTS system function? It functions. Is it the best way to do it? No. Well, if the process can be improved and we can create better, safer, more competent, proficient pilots, why wouldn't we do that? If there was a way to improve the process, why not? Why not, why not make that uh, our national airspace system a safer system? Um, and, and then the second part of that is why is the FAA always changing stuff? This is an industry-led effort. Um, the FA is, has been extremely supportive of this process, but this is absolutely an industry-driven effort. And hopefully everybody from this uh, uh, call tonight understands that. I mean, it's, this is not something the FA did in a corner. Quite the opposite. Um, the FA came and said, hey, will you help us? And we said, oh, my goodness, yes. Why didn't you ask us sooner? <laughs> you know? um, and uh, it, it's, it's not an FA change. It's an industry change that the FA is supporting. Um, but I think those are probably my, my top fears and just, just the, the naysaying, you know, the people who don't like change, you know, like, well, you know, I liked it the way it was. It didn't need to change. Well, and that's, there's, there's something to be said in that and comfort and stuff like that. Like, you know, I like, I like my macaroni and cheese the way I like my macaroni and cheese, you know, don't change my macaroni and cheese. But at the same time, this isn't changing your macaroni and cheese. This is you were eating macaroni and cheese, and now here's a filet mignon. <laughs> Keep the macaroni and cheese. I'm going to eat the steak. <laughs> so it's it's not even it's not so much a a change as it is a, a a different philosophy of how to train and test pilots. So um, it's a long answer, and there's probably more. But I guess those are my 
my personal concerns, just the that realization that somebody is going to wake up one day and not know the change happened. That's definitely my biggest concern, and that's what we're spending the predominant amount of our effort on right now as a group to make sure that doesn't happen. Well, Eric really did a great job of explaining Airman Certification Standards, and I, I highly recommend that you share that episode with anybody who wants to understand what the new Airman Certification Standards are. Moving on to our next pick for 2016 is Episode 113, NTSB's Most Wanted List. So let's go to that episode. The first one I want to go over, though, the first one we're going to start with here, and this is something that, that I'd, I'd really like to get the input from Paul and also from the flight instructors that are out there full-time instructing and the other pilots that fly a lot, general aviation, is reducing fatigue-related accidents. And that's, uh, that's a big issue. That's at the top of their list there. And, uh, you know, it, it's obvious when we're flying an airplane, driving a car, driving a train, whoever you are, driving a boat, you, you want to make sure that you're alert at all times. But uh, it's really, really a challenge at times to be alert all day if you have particularly a long day or a long commute to work, etc. You know, it's interesting. When I had a day job, you know, a normal job, I should say, where I was at a desk and say I was fatigued and I fell asleep, there wasn't uh, an imminent disaster, uh, you know, if I was to fall asleep on my desk. Maybe I dropped my pencil. But, you know, in, in the transportation world, something really bad can happen, and we don't want that to happen. So the NTSB has looked at this and said, you know, there's, there is something out there that we need to keep looking at fatigue uh, as a big risk factor in how to mitigate fatigue. As a matter of fact, I did um, – a safety seminar, and I do a safety seminar, on how it's called the fatigue pilot, how to recognize and manage fatigue. And I'll have a link to that. There's actually a YouTube video I did about that presentation. And there's some really good, good tools and takeaways. But first, let's t- look at uh, you know, one of the things that has changed over the years with air transportation, and that is this new rule, the FAR 117. FAR 117. And Paul, you have a unique perspective on uh, these new rules that have come out for fatigue, and also uh, you have a unique perspective because you're in there all day flying. The t- and that type of flying that was defined in FAR 117, the rules that were made to prevent people from being fatigued, and because of an accident, they made up these rules. Paul, what what is unique about flying for uh, a, a regional airline as far as fatigue, and what do you do to mitigate that? Sure. So. When you talk about the the new rest rules that were specific to regional flying, um, obviously it applies to all Part 121 flying, but the the rest rules I think apply more specifically to the regionals because we fly so many legs a day. And so there's a table. It's called Table B in the uh, FAR 117 regulations. And and essentially, uh, the way this table works is you based on the number of legs you fly in a day. And the time that you report for work, it limits your duty day to a certain period of hours. So as an example, let's say I were to fly five legs and I reported for work at 5.30 in the morning. I can only fly for 11 point – I can only work on duty for 11.5 hours. Um, now, that's not flight hours. That's just my duty day. Um, at that point, at a 5 o'clock report, I can fly a maximum of nine total flight hours out of the 11-and-a-half-hour duty day. And that that uh, duty day time period changes 
for example, if I were to fly only one leg at that same report time, I could fly for 12 hours. And so um, <clears throat> what they're trying to do is they're trying to mitigate fatigue by limiting the number of hours that you can be used in a day. Now, where that becomes I don't want to. I don't want to say a problem, but where where it affects us is um, when when you work a bunch of days in a row. So right now I'm on a really busy schedule because I attended um, some some special training that took eight days. So in order, we're so short staffed that I, I I couldn't get the days off. So what they had to do is they they gave me the days off in the beginning of the month, but then they added trips. They backfilled my schedule and my my days off with with more flying, so I've essentially been flying. Let's let's just say five days in a row with a day off, and another three day three or four days in a row with a day off. So what, what what's about to happen to me likely tomorrow, but if not tomorrow, for sure the next day, is that I'm going to time out because there's there are flight limitations as well. So for example, you can only fly 100 hours in 672 uh, rolling hours, or you can only have 60 flight duty period hours in 168 hours, which is seven days. So that's the one I'm coming up on. Which So 60 hours in, in a rolling seven days is, I'm, I'm, I've almost, I'm about, I think, four hours shy of exceeding that. So I'm sure I'll exceed that tomorrow. And what that means is, um, if I exceed that before I finish my day flying, I'm going to time out and I'm not going to be able to fly that, those trips. So that they're trying to mitigate fatigue, um, and trying to get ahead of the game, uh, by using this new FAR 117 rule. Now, this new FAR-117 is really affecting you right now because uh, there's a couple things. We have to make sure you're fit for duty and you get right. enough rest. Correct. And you're talking to us right now, and I know you have to. You may have to you know, knock off early because you need to right. get rest because you're flying early tomorrow morning, aren't you? I think That's it's correct. like, yeah. yeah so you, yeah, but that, we, that's an important part of the rule, right? Getting the proper amount of rest, too. Yeah, you need to have 10 hours of rest. Um, so that's and that's definitely an important part of the role, and so um, and you have to be fit for duty. And a lot of the onus is on you to um, to to sort of say that you're fit for duty. So when I sign the release, I'm I'm attesting that I am fit for duty to fly the airplane. And so it's it's if it's, if I'm not if I'm if I'm accepting the flight and I am fatigued, it's on me. The company gives me the company gives us outs. One of you know one of the outs is um, having the ability to call in fatigued, and and you calling in fatigued, um, so it's like throwing a flag and saying you know what I can't do this I'm tired it's unsafe I can't do it and uh, and so there's no punishment on you it cannot be held against you it's just okay you're fatigued you know you call scheduling you say you're fatigued they say okay um, stand by for your new report time. And they give you a new report time for the following day, um, they, and so you get you don't lose pay for the trip. So um, that what they wanted to eliminate there was uh, people not using not calling in fatigued for fear of not being paid. So you can call in fatigued, you can still get paid for the trip, and um, you don't you, you don't get in trouble for it. You do have to fill out some paperwork and you have to fill out a report, but it's a really great system. Um, that's put in place 
to, to use when, when you are fatigued. And, and it's just, it's a part of being human. We're human beings up there and, and things happen and you get tired and, and, you know, you need to, you need to be your, you need to be an advocate because you're, you're protecting people. You know, when you fly 50 people around, that's a, there's, a, there's a lot of lives on the line. And so I think that it's a, you have a responsibility if you're not fit to fly to say, you know what, I'm not fit to fly. I'm too, I'm fatigued for whatever reason. Um, you know, and, uh, and, and utilize that tool that's given to you. Well, the one thing with that, though, is that I think we as pilots, uh, general aviation, airline pilots, et cetera, we don't want to do that because we're so, we are so mission-driven that we don't want to call in fatigue. We don't want to tell our friends that, hey, listen, I can't take you to Key West in the morning to go hang out for Fantasy Fest because – I just didn't get enough sleep last night. I'm sorry. I had a. I was up doing a surgery. I was doing. You know, I didn't sleep in Holiday Inn last night, so I didn't get any rest, and I'm not. I'm not ready to go. And and that's right. that's a tough decision to make. Have you ever called in fatigue? By the way, I actually have once, yeah, and okay. it was one. And it was a tough call because I was pretty new. I was on reserve, um, and I had. I was working uh, six days in a row, and I called in on day six fatigued and um very very briefly the circumstance was i for the previous five i i was put on a five-day trip that had morning reports for the first five days so i had my body was used to getting up at four four thirty in the morning for a five o'clock van for a five thirty show and so that's what i was used to and so on day six i was uh off that trip the trip had ended but on i had one more day of reserve left and they the night before, they told me you're going to report to the airport for a 7 a.m. flight. It was a 6 6:30 report for a 7 a.m. flight. You're going to fly a turn, meaning I'm going to find an airport. I'm going to. Tu- it's a quick turn. I'm going to turn around and fly back to uh, Newark, the original point of departure. I'm going to be released 20, uh, 10 minutes after I get back, and then I'm going to go home for 10 hours, and then I'm going to fly. Um, what they call a split duty or a stand-up flight, which is last flight out for, for the day and then first flight back in the morning with minimum rest. And we, I don't know if Carl wants to get into that or not, but that's that's a whole other sort of ball of wax there. But right. uh, but essentially, it's like working it's like working a night shift. So now here I was working the day, the early morning shift, be, getting done with work at like three in the afternoon. And being up at four o'clock in the morning, and I did that again. I flew a turn. I came home. I was. I got back to the airport at uh, like noon, and or I'm sorry, not uh, eleven. And then I had to report back ten hours later. So I report back that night. I'm exhausted. To I'm walking in the door like a zombie because it's ten o'clock at night, and I have to fly in you know half an hour. And I had been in bed sleeping every other night previously at like eight eight o'clock or eight thirty or something. So I get to the plane. The plane's on maintenance. They tell us it's going to be like two or three hours. It was some. It was a significant issue. So two hours goes by and I'm I'm falling asleep in a chair. Okay. And uh, and then they say, all right, the plane is now ready to go, um, and we need you to fly to this airport, um, drop these people off, reposition the plane to this other airport, and then pick those other people up and fly them back. Then we get to the plane, and then there was a new, ma- a new uh, maintenance issue that was going to delay us another hour. And I just I threw in a flag, and I said, I can't do it. I just, I just can't do it. I, can't st- I couldn't even f- 
fathom staying up another hour, let alone flying people for an hour and then flying somewhere else and then flying back, you know, at six o'clock in the morning. So I call them fatigued. I commend you for doing that. I mean, that's, it's tough to do, isn't it? Well, it was tough to do because I think I was with the company for like three or four months. So here I am a new employee. Um, I, 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 I believe it or not, it's uh, retrospectively, you hear the story and you're like, geez, that's, I mean, you know, no human being should have to endure that, uh, you know, and who could stay up that long and, and be alert and fly an airplane under those conditions. And, and I look back and I laugh and I say, yeah, I would, I would have called in fatigued every time over that. But in the moment I agonized over that decision because I was a new employee. Um, and I, you know, here I am, I'm trying to be, I'm trying to be the best employee I can be. Additionally, you know, we're like, like you said, I completely agree with that statement. We're pilots, we're mission driven people, we're type A people. We want to get the job done. And I had that, you know, get let's get the job done kind of mentality, except I kind of took a step back and said, hold on a second here. I mean, is this the safest course of action? Am I, am, am I being, am I operating the aircraft or can I operate the aircraft safely? And it's not a matter of operating the aircraft under normal circumstances, but what happens if we lose the engine on departure? Can I operate the aircraft safely on one engine or if, if there's a fire or smoke or something? And I didn't, and the, and, I asked myself those questions, and the answer was no. So I called in fatigue, and I'd do it again. That's and that, like I said, I commend you for that. That's a that was Thanks. the right decision. But now, we, you know, this is a great example of of somebody in an airline that's calling in fatigue. I've called in fatigue once. Uh, actually, had to call security and get some help going out the door because the passengers were going to kill me. And uh, <laughs> it, it it was sad because I I really I've been going for twenty four hours straight. And uh, you know, I won't tell you the whole story there, but it was basically I was reassigned to something. They said, come back to the airport in nine hours. I said, well, I don't have anywhere to go. So I slept in a chair and got up. I really didn't get much sleep. I said, I can't do this anymore And uh, after a long day of flying. So, so now let's take this, what we just talked about. This is, this is awesome that you're explaining what happened. But as you were talking, this is what I'm thinking in my mind. And let's relate this to general aviation because we, as general aviation pilots, are trying to learn from what the airlines are doing. We don't have – some of the tools that the airlines have, meaning FAR 117, which I know is a rule, but it's also a tool. Because right. if we operate within the rules, this is going to keep us safer. But we have all these other things that we can do in general aviation to keep ourselves safe. And and as you're talking, I, I, I in my mind, start thinking about the attorney, the producer, the, the uh, person that does surgery, that wants to fly the next day with their family. All these, it's not just unique to the airlines, is it? It's also part of general aviation. So, so as general aviation pilots, we see the same thing. I mean, as airline pilots, we see that happen. You know, my, my fatigue risk management is a little different because of, of, say, I do a lot of red eyes or, you know, I'm flying six, seven hours straight in one, one instance and then I come back and I'm fatigued and I can't fly anymore. That's from an airline perspective, right. but there's so many good stories out there from a GA perspective. And you know, I'm wondering if anybody else has a, a good one. Victoria, do you have a good story that you, you might be able to relate to us as far as fatigue and risk management? I do, actually. It was um, during my commercial training, we needed to do some sort of cross-country or something. And I was up until maybe 4 a.m., just couldn't sleep and then ended up working a full day and then went right to the airport afterwards to do this cross country and took off a Pontiac. And the next airport after that is 
um, Flint, Michigan. And um, we were contacting Flint Approach and, you know, we just contacted them and they gave us, you know, the um, altimeter setting and flying along. And all of a sudden they go, uh, whatever my end number was, clear to land, runway, such and such. And I was like, why is he clearing me to land? Well, little did I know, and my instructor wasn't correcting me because um, he just wanted to see what was going on, was I was descending <laughs> so much enough that the uh, control thought I was coming into land. Wow. And it was just because I had a lack of sleep and I was just sitting there in the slow descent and didn't realize it quick enough. And Well, in that flight, did you have any tools that you folks use for, for fatigue risk management or risk management for the flight in general? Well, um, the tool we ended up using was turning around and going back because we knew <laughs> there was no way I was going to make it. Right. Um, you know, I just tried to push myself. You know, I didn't want to cancel on the instructor because, of course, you know, they lose out too. But, you know, you could tell when they're clearing you to land when you're intending just to fly over the airport, something's a little off. Well, you know, there are some great tools out there on the FAA website as far as fatigue risk management and things that we can we can ask ourselves and and we can actually fill out a form that that says you know this is this is the risks and uh, is, am I at too high of a risk for the flight that I'm about to do? Sometimes you don't recognize it, do you? Like Victoria, did you recognize you were that tired prior to the flight? I knew I was tired, but I did not realize how tired be before I got, you know. And what, what's that the, the medicine says? Do not operate heavy machinery. <laughs> yeah. I did not notice it until I started operating heavy machinery, just how bad of an idea that was. <laughs> so, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned your instructor. And, you know, your instructors also a lot of times get fatigued. And I'd, I'd love to hear from some of the instructors here. But I, I myself had someone come up to me and say, hey, you know, Carl, you need to kind of cut back on this. You, you know, you, you're doing a little too much flying here. Uh, I was within the regulations as far as the number of hours I could fly in a day. But have you ever recognized that in your instructor, Victoria, that they were too fatigued to go and say, hey, listen, are you okay? <laughs> um, yeah, kind of. I don't know if he was tired or bored, though. But I did, I did think it, it was like a winter day, a little too much pattern work, bored out of his mind. And I think he nodded off until I landed a little hard. What happened there? I was like, well, you don't know. I don't, I don't know. Um, but no, that that was the only case that I can think of off the top of my head, and I just find it funny. <laughs> and you know, it's interesting because I I've had students tell me, hey, listen, are you okay? Are you 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 awake? I was like, wow, you know, maybe I'm working too many hours. But how about some of the other instructors here? Let's see, Tom and uh, and or Tom, have you had any instances where you've had to call and say, hey, that's it, I'm not going to fly anymore? And do you have any way of mitigating uh, fatigue where you work? Um, I haven't had any opportunities as of yet, um, but uh, I, I am always aware of it. Um, I check myself regularly, and, and I, ha I ask students as well. You know, um, the FAA provides us uh, the "I'm safe" checklist. Mm -hmm. You know, and one of the things that's in there is fatigue, and you know, among other things. And 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 it's a normal check to go through to make sure that um, I, as an instructor and the um, student, are are ready to uh, fly the mission that we're about to fly that day. Um, you know, I try to look at it for myself because, you know, um, I, I really don't want to put myself into a situation where, um, you know, I'm going to be unsafe in the sky. Um, you know, because as you know, as a flight instructor, I spend most of my day flying with people who don't know how to fly, you know, so it, it behooves me to uh, make sure that I'm as sharp as I can possibly be. Um, that said, you know, 
um, once we start getting busy at times, it's, it's, it is hard to recognize because it's, um, it's easy just to have another cup of coffee and push yourself through the day and say, okay, I got to get this done. I got to get this done. And then you realize in hindsight, wow, I was, I was getting pretty tired there. And um, I have, I've gotten that situation once or twice, but it's, it's not been uh, overwhelming. So would you agree, Tom, that maybe we should start looking towards the possibility of, of instituting some fatigue risk management training in, in all these different environments? I know obviously the airlines do it and uh, even in the flight schools. Do you think that's a good idea? Um, I do, but I, don't, I, I can't wrap my head around how that's going to be done um, because fatigue is such an individual thing, if you will. Mm-hmm. It's almost like they do um, high-altitude training so that they uh, you know, give you an oxygen deprivation so that you can start experiencing hypoxia because it's so different in individuals. And, and I'm wondering if fatigue is kind of the same way. Now, there's basic studies that have gone through and, and you know, even the NTSB sites that you know, a, a normal adult should have seven to nine hours of sleep to keep from uh, being uh, tired, um, you know, does that really work for everybody? I mean, didn't they say Einstein only slept four hours a night? But right. Of course, you know, he was in a laboratory. He wasn't yeah, flying an he aircraft. He wasn't flying a plane. He was blowing up things in a lab. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, but but that, but that's that, that's kind of what I'm where I'm going with this. Is is it different for individuals? And how do you put a blanket statement out there that's going to cover every individual as far as what quote unquote fatigued is? Well, I think one of the things that we can do is uh, start attending more seminars, safety seminars, et cetera, and and ask your your instructor, the owner of your school, and also your flight department, hey, can we put in some training for fatigue risk management, but also the recognition of fatigue and understanding the different types of sleep and, and you know, what type of sleep, what sleep deprivation will do for me and how much of a risk it is. So I think, too, if we understand the problem, we also understand how to recognize it. It's kind of like you just said with, with you know, high altitude chambers, understanding what's happening. I think that will help quite a bit. So I think that's one of the solutions I've, I've come up with it that I feel that is, is really good is that get out there, do the training and try to recognize it, have a checklist, do as much as you can. Is any system perfect? No, it's very individual. Uh, like you said, there are certain people that, that have different modes of operation and they, they have different ways of, of fatigue affecting their body. So that, that's really, really important going forward is to have classes and start getting some more fatigue recognition training. There's a lot of different things, like you said, the NTSB has come up with. And it's not just getting the sleep. You know, it's, it's understanding concepts that we may not have heard of, like sleep, sleep inertia. You know, what is sleep inertia? And if you don't know what that is, I, you know, challenge you to go out and find out and, and start reading about that out there. Um, Paul, I know you, you also ha- were an instructor. Um, have you had any experience as far as fatigue uh, in, in the instructing environment or, or were you at one of those people that, that never got tired? No, I live in a constant state of tiredness. <laughs> so I, I have a lot of experience. No, um, actually, I agree with what with Tom said I want, before I bring up a, another point i just wanted to say it's true you know people everybody experiences different i'll call them symptoms of fatigue and i think one of the biggest things that we can do is pilots period i don't mean airline pilots but general aviation airline whatever is to be aware and i think bringing awareness to this issue is one of the most important things that we can do and you know when you're sitting around and it's a crummy day out and you can't go fly and you're talking you know you're just hangar flying with some buddies you know maybe bring it up and and talk about it and and just start a conversation because i think that um you know people 
it can be kind of an, it can have sort of this insidious onset where you're you're not really sure um you think you're tired and you but you think you could do it until you get in the plane kind of like what victoria was saying earlier and um and then you realize oh man i'm really i'm really beat i really i shouldn't be doing this so awareness i think to is is something that's incredibly important in on this topic because it's probably it's probably one of the most dangerous things that uh that we face because it occurs every day and flying or doing operating anything when you're when you have a, an incredible level of fatigue and I won't go too much into it but it can be as dangerous as as operating intoxicated uh, uh you know having a alcohol impairment so it's it's critically important but um another point I wanted to make from the general aviation instructor side and this didn't happen with me, I was not the instructor, but my one of my closest friends, who's actually doing his commercial check ride tomorrow in Florida, um, was scared out of flying for years because of an instructor who fell asleep on him on his very first lesson flying. So he went up, um, he went up with an instructor in New Jersey, uh, where he he I finally had convinced him to do flight training. He goes up for his very first introductory flight. And he's flying over Western New Jersey, and he looks over, and this you know mid mid to late seventy year old instructor is passed out asleep, and he's hunched over his seatbelt. I mean, out cold. So he, my friend, panicked, but he thought he's like, I wonder if he's, I wonder if he died. <laughs> he's uh-huh. out. He was out for the count. Out for the count. You know, just and um, so he had a minute or so and kind of like was giving him a little nudge and he wouldn't wake up and then he started to get a little panicky and finally he wakes up and he's like oh, oh sorry uh, let's head back to the airport and uh, so he, he goes back to the airport and he didn't fly again for like three or four years Wow! and he's just now he, last uh, two years ago he just finally went I finally convinced him to go back and uh, so he got his private and he got his instrument and now he's working on his commercial but and he's doing a great job but it scared him out of flying for years so it's you know as instructors we have a really important job to uh, make people comfortable because that's one of the laws of learning right is uh, you, you don't want you students don't learn if they're not um, uh, fit you know in a, in a situation where they can be fit to learn and there's comfort and and all these other whole hierarchy of things that needs to be met and um safety comfort is is up there and he did not feel he was he was not having that need met and it scared him out of flying so we almost lost a pilot because an instructor was too too fatigued to stay awake on an introductory flight and fortunately i was able to convince him to go back to it but i think that's an incredibly powerful um problem you know Mm -hmm. sure and uh so yeah well, and and along with that story, I mean, it's the fatigue is a problem too. But you know, fatigue is also part of being medically fit for duty, uh, and and all the other things that go along with. It. As a matter of fact, that's the other thing on the the uh, one of the NTSB's uh, top uh, you know lists right here as far as uh, most wanted is required medical fitness for duty. Are we fit for duty? Are we medically? fit for duty uh are we is the fatigue is it caused by a medical 
condition possibly. So that's the other part of it. If we, you know, moving on to the next part or one of the other parts of this is are we medically fit for duty? Was the fatigue caused by the possibility of having maybe sleep apnea, not being able to get sleep at night or something else? Whereas there's, that is something that's really important that we have the ability to understand are we, are we not just not unfatigued are we are we fit for duty excuse me but are we also do we have any other issues in our medical background that might prevent us from actually flying today and uh, one of those things it could be maybe you have a, a color deficiency that you didn't know about and you you need to find out if you you can actually fly it's usually caught within your medical exam yes i understand that but uh, but it, you know that one flight that they had in Tallahassee that that crashed it was one of the pilots had a severe color deficiency uh, which they said was part of the contributing factors uh, towards correctly identifying the the pappy lights and warning that the flight was too low and how is that that's a condition for flight that we have to have are we taking medications that type of thing so that that's also you know tom brought that up the i am safe che- uh, checklist you know are are you taking any medications do you have any deficiency can you pass and this is what i always tell people when you're coming to a to a flight and you're moving into the the aircraft are you able to pass your medical your FA medical right now, and if you don't think you can or there's something that's inhibiting you from that, then you shouldn't be flying. Unfortunately, there's times when you don't recognize that, and uh, and that's just that's that's part of that whole risk of flying. It's it's and just in life in general, we don't we don't always know uh, if we are uh, fit to fly because we don't recognize some of those symptoms, and that's why I think it's important that we do that. Um, and that's that's what the other part of that list is, you know, are we are we actually fit to fly medically? And that's something that, you know, we can all, we all can agree on that, and we, we all can real, try to realize that we are fit for flight, but we can do that through some of the tools that are that are actually out there. Uh, so that that's one of the ones from the list. That's kind of a, a short topic there. But one of the other ones that I think is really interesting on this NTSB Most Wanted list is, uh, you know, trying to – they talk about disconnecting from deadly distractions. And I think, Tom, you you actually, I think, had an, an interesting story I think you were going to say about disconnecting from deadly distractions in the cockpit especially uh, and in your flight. Have you experienced anything in your in your flight instructing or your flying world where you were very distracted in the cockpit? Um, no, not specifically. But, I, you know, I, I, I saw this and took interest in it just because, you know, I like all the whiz-bang uh, gadgets that we have coming out. And, and, you know, I like playing with those things and seeing how we can apply them in the cockpit. And, uh, you know, there's some really cool stuff out there. Um, I did most of my flight training in a, in a Garmin G1000. So, I mean, just learning that thing was overwhelming and then applying it to, um, to aviation, you know. So with all the technical advances that are out there that you can get in the cockpit and have them hardwired in and even that you can carry in your pocket and bring into uh in the in the cockpit with you um you know really it it, you can make these things work for you but you have to work them you know and and the picture that they have here with this guy holding a phone and his thumb on it and you know where what are you doing you're looking at your thumb you know and and as you're punching away on stuff on on a little tiny screen um trying to make it work for you and you know, other things are going on outside, um, and, and it's real easy to lose that. And, and I found that today. Um, I did some sim, simulator time today, and it was uh, just a 172 and a Redbird full motion, but it, it was, you know, um, distracting just even to do things and try to keep the plane, um, you know, heading in the direction and at the altitude that you wanted to, you know, in IMC conditions they were simulated. But it, it, it's very easy to get distracted, and I can see where 
these devices that we have add to that, you know, and, and where the concern is coming from. But the device many times is is helping us with our flight or is a tool that's assisting us in our flight. So, you know, we're looking at this device well, and we're, it's, we have to manage that device, don't we? Well, let, well, let me ask you this. Where did you learn how to use that device and, and that it was going to work properly? Did right. you do it on the it, ground? Most, of the, most of the apps that I have don't work until you actually get them up in the air and get them going. Right. You know, um, four flights like that, I mean, pilots like that, you know, um, well, most of the features in it don't work until you're actually off the ground. I'm, so, I'm glad you brought that up. And uh, it, it, one of the things that I – we, when they first came out with these GPSs and doing GPS approaches, you know, I, I knew the helicopter pilots locally were saying, hey, someone's going to get hurt because they're, everybody's heads down in the cockpit trying to learn how to use this GPS because there's really uh, no other way to learn that except in the aircraft. Now they have a lot more simulators. But, uh, but boy, I think, I think you make a good point there, Tom, uh, is that, yeah, are we learning this – in the cockpit, or are we learning this on a simulator? We try as much as we can to learn it in a simulator, and there's so many great devices out there, but uh, that, that will do training on these on these different PEDs, electronic devices, etc. But you still, a lot of times, it doesn't work properly, like you said, until you actually get into the into oh, the yeah, cockpit. Oh yeah, it's not it's not all about um, you know Lord uh, flying the plane as well. You know, how about taking videos? I've put a GoPro in a cap in a, in a airplane before so that I could watch myself later and analyze my maneuvers as I was working on my commercial. So now you have an app that lets you use the GoPro so that you can turn it on when it's in the plane. Again, it's another distraction. Interesting. You know? Interesting. So and, and and that had nothing to do with the with the completion of the mission. Right. You know, it was it was a it was for a training issue. Um I at the time that I did that, I did learn how to use that on the ground. And it was already on and I didn't have to do it while it was flying. But I could see that happening. It's another app that's on a phone that's on a separate device that, that you could be using um, while you were flying. Hmm. Interesting. Cool. Hey, uh, Tom, this is Larry. Um, just a, a couple of quick thoughts there from, from some of your comments. Um, I have, like many of us do, I think, have a flight simulator set up uh, on a table in my basement, um, and I use X-Plane. But uh, there are a couple things there that I've found to be really helpful. One is uh, some software from a place called flythissim.com, and they're always at Sun and Fun and Oshkosh. You can see their booth. Um, but they have a really nice uh, Garmin uh, G1000 simulator and some other avionics as well. Um, that's much more realistic than anything else that I've used. Um, and also, um, you can uh, send the uh, location information from X Plane, and I think from Flight Sim too, but from X Plane, you can send the location information to uh, For Flight. So it actually works just like it does in the cockpit. Of course, none of that's loggable. Um, but if it's just a, an exercise of trying to learn how the you know ForeFlight software works, or learn a little bit more about a, a G1000, um, it can be really helpful. Interesting. So it, you know, even though we have all those tools, a lot of times we don't use them until we actually jump in the airplane. You know, uh, but that, that's very cool. I think that's that's an awesome thing, and everything everybody should try to do that. But you know, distractions uh, can be found by just using your cell phone. And, you know, a lot of people think with the airlines, we're not allowed to use cell phones, right, when we're flying. Uh, that's not true, actually. And I know this is going to become as a shocker, but we can actually make phone calls uh, on the cell phone, but only in certain specific instances. And I'm sure Paul can comment on this. But if I need to make a phone call, say I'm taxiing around and something breaks, you know, we have procedures in place. And this is kind of the point I'm trying to make. We have procedures in place that tell us, okay, we're about to use this device 
and we're going to set the parking brake, and then we can use the phone to call maintenance and find out, hey, we, you know, how do we fix this problem we have, or get a new clearance, or or get a new release. We can actually do that with a parking brake set, just like certain other devices. We're actually allowed to get on the internet too, but we can only do it in non-mission critical environment, and we can only get on the internet and look at things that are specific to the operation of that flight. Paul, do you have that type of, of uh, rules in place at where you work? Yeah, um, not, the, not the internet part, right. but, uh, <laughs> but definitely the cell phone. <laughs> no, no Wi-Fi capability on the dash, no. but uh, definitely, definitely the cell phone. And uh, because it's a dash, we use that cell phone quite often. But uh, the parking brake's got to be set. And uh, yeah, so same, same exact rule. And, uh, and we do use it quite a bit. So I think Larry's point was really good, though, as far as, uh, you know, getting in there and getting some training and the devices being used. But you also, I think it's important to learn when to and when to not use those devices. That's extremely important. I think that's what the NTVSB is trying to tell us here. Um, moving on to, uh, let's see, the uh, other equipment. Now, I think, Paul, you had one more comment on that one before we move on. I was just going to mention, you know, if you're flying with new equipment, uh, like say you're, you know, you're trying out for flight for the first time, um, it it's, might be a good idea to just have a safety pilot with you. So let a guy go up and just uh, keep his heads up and he's, he's looking for traffic and, and he, maybe he's even flying the airplane if you don't have an autopilot capable airplane. And um, so that you can be heads down and you can be learning your equipment if it's something that you absolutely can't simulate on the ground, which I, I know a lot of things are, are, are you're able to simulate on the ground and you're able to learn on the ground. But if there's things that you really want to get some experience with in the air, having a safety pilot up there with you um, is, I think, a, a really solid way to go. Interesting. Yeah, I think that's a great, great advice. Get up, get up with somebody. I know it might be a little more expensive. It might be free if it's with a friend. You know, just make sure that you brief them and make sure somebody's always flying and always looking outside. I think that's very, very important. Uh, we only have time for just one more of these uh, on the on the most wanted list with the NTSB, and that's preventing loss of control in flight and general aviation. And uh, some of the big takeaways, as a summary, uh, they're looking at the possibility. Of, of moving towards uh, more hardware in the aircraft that can actually recognize our angle of attack. I know that some of us fly aircraft that have an angle of attack indicator, uh, and I know some people say, well, you know, my airspeed is somewhat an indirect, uh, uh, you know, angle of attack indicator. But you know what? A, a plane can stall, you know, any attitude, any airspeed. And uh, we need to recognize that, and we have to know, you know, what it is our aircraft's going to do at different uh, flight regimes and different parts of the flight envelope. Uh, so they're talking about loss of control, uh, and one of the things, one of the tools that will prevent loss of control is the angle of attack indicator. And the reason being is that it prevents the aircraft from doing what? From stalling, right? And I think it's a really cool device, and I'd like to see more of them put into aircraft. And uh, the solution is moving forward, which I think is exciting, and uh, and we do talk about it quite a bit in our in different forums and in different uh, safety programs, but. Uh, angle of attack indi indicators are all different. I mean, I've had you know four or five different airplanes I've flown uh, with angle of attack indicators, and they all all looked a little different. And uh, you know, you have to understand with your specific aircraft and with the equipment you're using how to understand what it's telling you uh, as far as the angle of attack is concerned. Because you know, when we're doing stalls, we're doing what? We're exceeding the the critical angle of attack. 
And this is the indication of that angle of attack. And uh, it actually is really cool. Some people call it a fast, slow indicator. Some really, really neat stuff. I'm wondering, does has anybody else had experience? Uh, I've had only one aircraft, general aviation, that I've ever flown with an angle of attack indicator. Has anybody else flown with an angle of attack indicator? Just curious. In a general aviation aircraft, that is. Crickets? No, I guess not. So they're not yeah. not as prevalent. And uh, I know people hey. that have them. I got to play with it. Hey, Carl, this is Tom. Uh, I haven't had it, actually seen it in the aircraft, but I will agree with you about them all being different. Um, having gone to a few of the air shows here the past couple of years, um, lots of vendors out there selling them for general aviation aircraft, and, and like you said, they're all different. Some of them have needles that point to different colors. Some of them have lighting fixtures that, that light up different colors, um, and, and uh, they can put them kind of in a heads-up kind of display. Um, there's all sorts of really, uh, I guess, neat stuff that they're doing with them, but uh, I don't think anybody's standardized them yet. And mm-hmm. and that's what I would think is as this moves forward, you know, um, it'd be cool if it was a standardized uh, piece of equipment. Gosh, I hope that happens. But it's like a lot of other things in the in the airplanes. They they somewhat are standard, but they're not quite all the same. And I, I know I hope they do come together more. But they they do need somewhat of some standardization. Uh, all the different uh, jets that I've flown, uh, they're all different as far as their angle of attack indicators. Uh, it's pre- it's quite interesting. Uh, some don't even have any. So it's uh, it's interesting to see. You know what what's going to come about with this. You know, and also with this other. You know, this will be our last topic here until we move on to picks of the week. But uh, the preventing the loss of control in flight in general aviation. They 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 do stress the whole angle of attack, and they talk a lot about that. They also talk a lot about other things. You know, different stall characteristics in in loading of your aircraft with an aft CG. Uh, you know, also. Uh, taking advantage of type clubs and, and understanding and you know your aircraft and getting some currency in the type of aircraft you're training. You're in a twin. Have you been out there? Have you done you know a bunch of single engine approaches, engine out procedures, that type of thing? And they also talk about managing distractions in your flying. So those are some other big takeaways. But but just to, you know the point I wanted to make is they really are focusing a little bit more on this angle of attack indicator. And I'm really excited to see more of the the indicators come out and uh, and to see how this actually evolves. And and I've you know I've seen some of the devices. I think they're really cool. And even some of the portable devices are super, super duper cool. So, uh, so that'll be that'll be really interesting to see how that evolves. Well, guys, you know, I we actually are uh, coming up on on the uh, the hour mark here with our show, and I know there was uh, we had another listener mail that came through. Uh, so I was wondering if we could get to that real quickly. I had uh, remember uh, we talked a little bit about uh, cold weather. We talked about cold weather flying uh, in the in the last show. And uh, during that show, we talked about the initial approach segment and the intermediate uh, approach segment, and we also talked about the other segments. But specifically, uh, we had someone that uh, sent us a message on the Facebook and asked us to discuss, you know, what is what exactly is an initial approach segment, and what's an intermediate approach segment, that type of thing. Uh, but uh, you know, just a, a quick review. You know, the the initial approach segment, of course, and the purpose of that. Uh, initial approach segment is to provide you know some method of aligning the aircraft with the intermediate or final approach segment and to permit a descent during that alignment okay while you're being aligned for that either the intermediate or the final approach segment uh, and that intermediate segment of course is designed to primarily the primary uh, driver of the intermediate approach uh, segment and the reason for it is to pr- uh, position the aircraft 
for the final descent to the airport. Okay, so that's that's part of that segment. You know, another thing that was mentioned is uh, what about feeder routes? Well, you know, feeder routes are depicted on instrument approach procedures, uh, and they're they're designate routes uh, for the aircraft to proceed from the enroute structure to the initial approach fix. But uh, feeder feeder routes uh, also are referred to as, of course, approach transitions. They technically are not considered approach segments, but are a very integral part of uh, of the instrument approach procedure. So, so that's very important there. And of course, before I, I move on, I did want to mention the final approach segment because I know we're going to get that question asked too. And uh, you know, the final approach segment for that approach uh, with any type of vertical guidance or precision, appro- precision approach begins where the glide slope or the glide path intercepts the minimum glide slope, glide path intercept altitude shown on that approach chart. So let's say if AITC authorized a lower intercept altitude, the final approach begins upon glide slope or glide path intercept at that altitude. So for instance, if it's 3,000 feet you know, and that's below the altitude, the final approach segment altitude, your final approach will begin at that glide slope intercept. Say they tell you to go to 2,000 feet. Uh, and, you know, for, for non-precision approach, the final approach segment begins either at the designated final approach fix, uh, which is usually depicted as a cross uh, on the profile view, uh, or at the point where the aircraft is established inbound on the final approach course. Um, when the final approach fix isn't designated, uh, you know, s- such as uh, an approach that has a VOR and NDB, uh, this point is typically where the procedure turn intersects with the final approach course inbound. And uh, and also this is uh, usually referred to as a final approach point, FAP. And the final approach segment ends, as as we might expect, at either at the designated missed approach point or, obviously, upon landing. So I hope that was a little bit of help for the people that were asking those different segments. I know that was a, a quick, quick overview, but I wanted to talk about that a little bit. We'll have some links to uh, where those terms are and where you can really get in depth on that information. We'll also have links at Stuck Mike Avcast episode 113 as far as the different things we talked about, the NTSB and also about recognizing and managing fatigue. I'm sure you have, and so have I, learned something from the NTSB's most wanted list and can put some of those things into practice when you're a future flying. So uh, go to episode 113 to listen to the entire episode. Coming up on the next one is going to be uh, two interviews in the next pick for 2016. That's episode 118. That's live from Sun and Fun 2016. I would love to play the whole episode. It was rather long. We did a live show, but there was two interviews that really stood out. The first one was with Ken Cage from Airplane Repo, and the second one was with Rod Rakick of Open Airplane. So let's go listen to that one. You know, another, I, I think, inspirational person in aviation and somebody that, uh, you know, I, I met last year here at Sun and Fun. Uh, you know, Ken Cage, he's, he's somebody that's, uh, I, I think, when I, when I first saw you, I remember there was somebody else with you on the deck. And uh, I said, you know, I have a, you know, somebody who's a, a banker and, and a biker. And uh, I wasn't really sure who you were when you were coming up here. Didn't recognize you at first, but uh, Ken Cage opened, uh, excuse me, Ken Cage <laughs> is Airplane Repo. Welcome to the deck. Thank you. I think I was the biker, yeah, right? No, no. no actually, <laughs> you look more like the banker. I, I wasn't think. the big <laughs> guy with all the muscles. <laughs> you know, welcome. I think Thank it's incredible you. what you've been doing for aviation. You're promoting aviation because of what you do. I know it's exciting to watch you repossess aircraft and all, but it actually gets people interested in flying. I think so. And, and one of the reasons I think is because of the people you have repoing aircraft 
people that haven't done it in the past. Right. And and tell us a little bit about that. About the, the people that have actually gotten involved in repoing aircraft that have never done that before. There was somebody, a lady on there, I think, that you had that said they wanted to get involved in, in repoing airplanes. Well, Heather Sturzik was on the show. Yes. Um, and she was with Kevin. So okay. Kevin, I think, took a uh, like an airplane, a, a Cirrus, I think, mm-hmm. 22 from an air show. Right. And she's like, yeah, I'll help you. That's cool. But guess what? Now you owe me a favor. I want to get into the business. And she kind of, you know, I mean, Kevin took her right on because you could tell she had some moxie to her. (laughs) Uh, She had a lot more, I think, than anybody realized at the beginning. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, she's been flying. She's an Army, I think, an Army vet. So um, great girl, amazing person, and uh, tough as nails. Yes. Yeah, she is tough as nails. Yeah, and I can tell cool. that. In the, and speak of the Army vets real quickly. By the way, the, the Sun and Fun, we are honoring all of our vets uh, and those folks that served. And uh, today's Air Force Day, but we oh, excuse me, it's the Marines is today. But we, we would first like to say thank you to all our vets that are sitting here uh, on the deck right now. Russ, thank you for your service. Thank you. And uh, anybody else who's come up here, thank you for what you've done here. And uh, it, it really it speaks volumes as to the sacrifice that some of the people have made. I, m- I remember we were doing an interview today, and you were on the deck, and uh, some young ladies come up, oh. the women Air Force Service pilots. It's an amazing story. They're amazing. What they went through and, and the challenges they had and the recognition that they didn't get until recently. Isn't that, isn't that crazy that somebody just went and took that from them yes and they had to go fight to say but we already did it yeah <laughs> it's insane I, to I, me i think and, and and even more so it's almost like they didn't even take it from them. they never gave them anything exactly they had to get themselves there they had to get themselves to training they had to get the hours on their own mm-hmm. matter of fact even when some of them uh, passed away they had to get their bodies home they had to pay for that and they had they had to go with the other ladies and escort the bodies home to bury them That's and, and, and we, we i'll never Never complain about anything right. again after after hearing their stories, but but they are great advocates for aviation, and uh, and in any way we can get that out there is is important. Great, I think that's true in, in what you do in a certain way. Okay, it gets people interested in aviation because it's exciting. It really is kind of like exciting, like the air show. Yeah, we got. I tell you, this <laughs> is the hardest thing to do. Normally, you have my back to the airplanes. Now you're letting me see them, and it's like, and, wait, did you ask me a question? Because <laughs> a bit distracting, isn't it? <laughs> I'm just sitting here. I could see this forever and still be like, oh, my gosh, look at them again. I mean, it's really neat. So how did you get involved in doing airplanes? I know you had a past in doing some other repos, but why, why airplanes? Well, I, before I bought this company with my business partner, um, I was at Chrysler Financial, and I was doing collections on high, high, high whatever. They were well past due. High-risk loans, we call them. Um, so I was calling the debtors and saying, hey, you owe us money. So I knew that side of the business, but I was just tired of working for other people. So Bob Weeks and I, you know, we've been friends since we were like 10. We're like, let's buy a company. And we looked at like an indoor golf training center just to let you know where we started <laughs> this, this process. And it came to the repos, and I didn't know much. I didn't know anything really about aviation. But that's kind of grown, and I heard you know, um, open airplane saying about the love comes at different times for different people, right? Mm-hmm. So... You know, here I am, a 40-year-old, don't know anything about airplanes, really. And I buy a company to repossess them and sell them. So, you know, it started as a business deal. But then as you get into it, you're like, that's really cool. And you, you, that's when you start to say, Yahtzee, as I'm known to say. Like, that's it. It's really neat. So that's, that's kind of how it happened for me. 
So you, but you had some experience repoing boats or anything in cars. No, just calling, just, just doing the collection side. That's it. I hired repo agents to go repo cars. So, so that's that's the experience right yeah, there. Yeah, that's, I was that's on that how side. You, you were able to get good talent. Is the key. Yes. You found good talent to repo. Yep. So how did it feel going on your very first repo? Uh, it, was, <laughs> it was it was scary. It was filled with errors. It was a big fifty-eight foot Hatteras boat. Okay. Um, and I went with Bob. Uh, the boat didn't start. We had a drunk towboat captain that the former owner hired that was crashing us into the pilings. It w- there was no electricity. Bob hit me in the head with a door. I'm gushing blood. But you know what? <laughs> oh, my. 24 hours later, we had this $400,000 boat. And it's like, you know what? The cut will heal. Everything else is fine. We got a great story, and we got something going here. So, and how, really, how much worse can it get from there? I mean, you'd have to actually sever a limb or something to get to get a worse experience. So you really start you set the bar in the correct place. Well, you know what? I'm glad Bob didn't hear you say that because he would have said, "Oh, goals, severed limb. That's yeah, our sever, next thing." So. so you're just like the NTSB. You get a phone call, and you've got to go. I know we were having lunch there before, and you said, "Oh, I got a call. I have to head out somewhere." Yep. Your calls are for here locally, is or is it somewhere across the state that you have to go? It's actually across the country. So you don't know where you have to go and when you have to go. No, I try and tie close ones together if I can to save on costs because the bank's first Mm -hmm. thought is how much can they save. But, you know, I've got one in uh, Washington State and down in uh, Northern California. So it's like, I'll tie those together, be gone three days and be home. You know, you're doing the the repos now. How did you get involved with putting those repos on television and sharing them with us? So what happened was in 07, the economy just blew up and it went really bad. 08 was worse. And then I'm the guy that's doing the high-end stuff. So I'm the one that shows how the rich people were getting hurt by this recession, which was a unique thing. So everybody got interested. Robert Frank from the Wall Street Journal did a front-page article on me, put my dotted picture on the front page and everything else. So um, once that happened, literally on Monday after that went, went live, I had calls from probably 30 or 40 television producers. I've heard from over 200 since that happened. Wow! But at the end of the day, the network said we want to do the show, and they called me. And it's an incredibly exciting show. I think I, I remember telling you the first time I saw the show, I didn't even have my volume on on my TV, and I, I don't need to. I mean, it's so cool. First of all, it's cool to watch the airplanes, I and mean, that's really cool. But you can tell the storyline and the faces of the people and the actions, and uh, you know, of, of you know, some large guys getting roughed up. It, it's it's quite exciting for me to see the planes take off. But it's also interesting to figure out how in the world do you get into these planes? How do you find somebody who has the experience to fly a specific airplane? This is not. You know, we're not talking just Cessna 172s. We're talking other airplanes. Yeah. It's something that we build up over time. Obviously, when you've done 2,200 over 10 years and you have all the government contracts, Mm -hmm. that's when you have all these contacts. And now, obviously, with the show, I've gotten three uh, applications today. Wow. So, (laughs) you know, even if they're not rated in a specific aircraft, I'll call those folks and say, hey, do you have somebody that is rated in this? And they'll know somebody or know somebody who knows somebody. It's usually two phone calls and I'm to the right guy. It's really that easy because everybody knows the aviation community is so tight. You make one or two phone calls and you get to the right person. Have you inspired anybody to try to fly now? I I, I hear I have. I mean, people have said so. I saw a young man today. Wow. Wow. That's awesome. It is awesome. (laughs) (laughs) At the podcast I did, we do a podcast, Real Repo Radio. And what that does is tell the backstories because you're only seeing 10, 12 minutes of my stories. And everybody's like, well, how did you get there? How did that happen? What was this guy for? 
we're telling the backstories. So we did one today at the 727. Um, had 40 people in there. Nice long line. It was great. But there was a 10-year-old boy there who came for his birthday to come see me and see the podcast. He's got, he had me autograph his logbook because he's committed to being a pilot as a result of seeing the show. Awesome. So I'm like, okay, we're doing something okay here. And, and that's paying it forward right there. I think you're inspiring people, like I said, to get into aviation. And that's one way you're doing it. You're doing it through your podcast, too, to make people realize there's more of a backstory. There's more to this than, than all the drama that goes on. Because there's a million questions I'm sure you get about each of these repos and how you did legal questions yep. and, and logistical questions. Oh, is it real? Did that really happen? Or is it Memrex? Did you put this together later? All those questions come out in your new podcast. And again, that podcast podcast is real repo radio real repo radio they can go on google and find it yep you're also on stitcher miro all over the place itunes everywhere and and how are things going people good good i mean we did the live one today we got a a, just a fantastic reaction from people that that were listening i've got uh with me co-hosting is marilyn russell who's been a philly morning radio host for 25 years so she really knows the radio business i'm like this is this is cool this is cool. So we're getting to tell some stories, getting to answer some questions from people, um, and it's been fun. Can, can I ask a question about Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Well, you know, one thing that's always interested me, of course, me being the airplane geek kind of guy, is uh, if I'm going to go repo an airplane, uh, how do I make sure that the airplane is actually airworthy? Uh, I tell my pilot to verify. <laughs> Honestly, it's up to them. I leave it up to them. Okay. If they're not sure, if they're not 100% sure, we'll just tell it. Uh, hand tug, whatever we need, depending on the size of the aircraft, we'll get it to a safe place. If we're at the at the debtor's FBO, mm-hmm. there's a good chance that they'll hide the plane. They'll work with the debtor to keep it from us. If we take it away from that FBO, right? And it's natural; they're looking out for their customer. If we just take it away, then we have all the time we need. So we actually do a lot of ferry permits. Interesting. Yeah, just wow. to make sure they are safe. We're not just going to jump in them and take off. I know that's what it shows. And well, of course. That's, yeah. They cut out all those fun parts where you're actually walking around for 30 minutes and looking at it. Because that's exciting to watch a guy flipping through 200 through. pages of documentation. Yeah. That's really fun. Exciting. That's exciting. That's what people want to really want to see that for 30 minutes. <laughs> How many pages were in the book? Well, yeah. So that's the stuff they cut anyway. So, How about other countries? Have you done repos in other countries? Mexico, et cetera? Yep. Mexico. We've done a few in Venezuela. Obviously, Canada, the UK, Europe, we've been there quite a few times. There's a, a myriad of other legal issues there, too. Yep. Yeah, depending on how friendly they are to the U.S. Um, some are very friendly, and I've told some people here this morning, like, if I go to, I don't know, Bermuda, Bahamas, whatever, I'll just put $150 worth of gas in their chase boats, and they'll stay with me all day to make sure everything's quiet. That's a friendly place. Other places, you got to get in, get the thing, and get out, and don't let anybody know you're there. So, you got to plan differently for Venezuela than you do for the UK, for example. Right. So, what's the largest aircraft you've ever repossessed? I get asked that a lot, and I mean, I've done a seven thirty-seven. Uh, oh wow! But I've done three seven twos from one debtor at a time. Wow. So that's the biggest case we've ever had. That was cool. The opposite question then would be, what's the smallest aircraft you've repossessed? Any uh, one-seater or anything? Uh, yeah, I mean, usually there's a limit to the value. If it's not sure. worth 5000 or more, we don't get it. Um, probably, it was a not... It was a valuable airplane. It was sixty, seventy thousand. But a, a Remos we picked up and had to bring it across the country. Okay, um, that was tiny. 
Um, one of my pilots was a six foot three, two forty, two hundred forty pound guy. He made me mad, so I made him take a co-pilot to bring a one fifty back <laughs> from Tennessee to South Florida, <laughs> and and they remembered it, so that was good. Um, yeah, a lot of small like one fifties, things like that, but no ultralights or anything like that. Has to be valuable enough to do it. I mean, yeah, it's not it, worth your time and effort if not. Yeah, to the bank if they're paying me more than what they can get on it. They won't. It's not do worth it. it. Yeah, yeah, that doesn't make sense at so all. So we'll leave it there. Wow, that's pretty exciting. You've gotten, you've actually been able to really interact with some really interesting people too. It's been, it, it's not just people that are hard up on their luck, is it? There's people that have money that wind up just not paying for things. Yeah. Some of the houses and places that you go must be pretty amazing. Oh, yes. <laughs> Give us an example of some place that you have repossessed an airplane from that uh, might look a little different than we think. It's not the dusty alley the the closed down airport with no lights on no there was i mean there was a out in palm springs california um you know it was at the airport there which is a an amazing airport to begin with but the house was a nine million dollar house and wow. it was all up to date and everything so it's like why aren't you paying aren't you for paying this it? you know cirrus sr22 great airplane but if you got a 10 million dollar house you can afford a four hundred thousand dollar airplane yeah pay mm-hmm. for it and it's just stuff like that so i mean that house was was just amazing um, even the flying communities, like those houses are expensive. The planes usually aren't jets. They're usually singles. So it's like, it's not making a lot of sense there sometimes. Sometimes they just don't want to pay. Right, right. Now you mentioned flying communities. Is that like a, a harder or easier repossession? Because it sounds like a, like a really close-knit kind of thing. You yeah, know? it is. I, I mean, honestly, with the experience that we have, and the way I look, I mean, you, you said I look like a banker. I can kind of fit in. I look like a pilot. I look like I fit in. So if I go to a flying community and I go to the restaurant, nobody's going to say, what's that guy doing here? Now, if Danny does, yeah, red right. flags, right? <laughs> right? Danny from, from the show. Um, so it's just knowing how to talk to people, um, knowing what the right behavior is and what it isn't. Yeah, Danny. Danny stands out. You don't. You a little. Uh, yeah, yeah, just a little bit there. <laughs> yeah, it, it's interesting though that to see you know you're someone with gray hair. You just you you have that persona of you could be just a pilot going out to an airplane to go fly. The typical person that's going to be going in that demographic that's going to be going into that airport to fly. So I could imagine you've sometimes just walked out to an airplane. I have, and it actually, it's funny because I used to love doing that when I was in college. I would. I'm a huge Tar Heel fan. I know I mentioned Villanova winning the championship this year. But I went down to North Carolina's basketball court. I just walked right on the court and started playing basketball, and nobody stopped me. It's stuff <laughs> like that, and I always found that to be a challenge. Where can I go? Where can I, you know, who can I get past? Where, how deep can I go into something and not get in trouble? That was just a hobby of mine for a long time. Now it's like, those are life skills for me now. I mean, how do I get out to that airplane? Right. i got to walk across the field, so... It's a lot of fun. You just got to walk in there with confidence. I, I, I know the feeling. I've, I've tried that in the past. The only place it really doesn't work is on military bases. Don't try the military <laughs> no, no, bases. No, 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 no. There's certain places where you do have to say, yep, I'm talking to you. Yes. This yeah. is what I'm here for and let them know. I tried it once. It didn't, didn't, <laughs> didn't turn out very well. We won't go into that story. So, Ken, like yes. we, we noticed we talked a lot about you know the different folks getting into the business and the different folks on the cast of Airplane Repo, and it's a huge spectrum of different people that have been involved in this and have been bitten by the bug at some point. What common traits, what common skills do you think makes a good aircraft repossession man? Honestly, the one thing you're asking me now, but the one thing I kind of think right off the top is um, we're all kind of calm in stressful situations. You know, I mean, none of us get razzled when something goes astray 
No, none of us get like oh, flustered or, or whatever. I think that's a big thing is be able to think quickly on your feet, to react quickly um, without a lot of emotion shown. So, for example, this year we had a big boat. The owner of the boat had three young girls in the boat. And then his wife comes on the boat. Oh, boy. And he's telling me I stole his Rolex watch, which is complete garbage. So, no, that's not true. Blah, blah, blah. So the wife's coming. He's giving me grief. I said, listen. And I picked up a pair of panties off the table. I said, listen, this can go one of two ways. You either give me the boat or your wife happens to see these. So it was that quick thinking that I did. Yeah, you see those. It's like, oh, that's leverage. Boom, I'm using that. And right then he's like, you'll do it? Oh, yeah, I'll do it. Fine. And I put the panties in my pocket, which, of course, that's the one thing every single viewer saw was me with the panties hanging out of my pocket. (laughs) Cut me some slack. But he walked away, and we got the boat. Wow. You know, it's interesting that uh, you were able to pick up on that right away, thinking on your feet. That's amazing. And I think if you watch the three of us, that's something each one of us is able to do is kind of. Exactly. Somebody's coming at you hard. Our adrenaline goes up as much as anybody else's, but it doesn't show here. And you're able to still kind of assess everything and figure out where the opening is. Broderick, welcome to the deck and welcome to Sun and Fun Radio. He has done something truly amazing with open airplane welcome to the deck thanks carl glad to be here hey you know uh one of the things that i've i've seen in the past is uh the growth of open airplane and i've seen people try to do things like this but you're the only one that's successfully done it i feel and i really my hat's off to you man oh thank you obviously it's a team effort um you know we started working on this as an idea back in 2011 uh we made it a company in 2012 announced here at Sun and Fun in 2012 what became Open Airplane. And we've launched in June of 2013, and we've been flying ever since. An Open Airplane, let's explain the concept to everybody who hasn't heard of it yet. Please do. Well, the simple way I explain it to folks is we make renting an airplane as easy as renting a car. Now, of course, then people nod and say, well, how do you do that? How do you do that? We offer pilots a universal pilot checkout. The universal pilot checkout does three things. One, it resets the clock on the flight review. Two, it earns the pilot up to a 10% discount on their renter's insurance. And three, we give them access to the same make, model aircraft all across the country for 12 months. That's incredible. I mean, that's just like renting a car. So I could go here somewhere in Florida. Where that? Where would that be? Somewhere in sure. Yeah, we have two operators in Tampa. You go to openairplane.com. You book a Universal Pilot checkout and go fly. Complete that process, and then you can, you know, make reservation requests across the country. Well, I have relatives in New York. Can I go to say Long Island and fly an airplane? Yeah, we have two bases on Long Island, uh, Republic and Mid Island. Uh, we have. Uh, just launched White Plains at HPN. Wow. So what types of aircraft can we rent with Open Airplane, and what is the checkout for each type of airplane? Sure. Well, it's a make-model-specific checkout. So if you get checked out in a Steam Gauge 172, that gives you access to all the Steam Gauge 172s. You can do an abbreviated checkout and get access to other make-model aircraft, and then every 12 months you do one checkout to reset the clock on everything that you've previously demonstrated proficiency in. And how how's the reception to this concept? How's it been? Well, a lot of people told us we're nuts. Uh, 
But what we did is we launched the company in June of 2013 with 5,000 pilots who had signed up and given us their email addresses and wanted wow. to at least know more about it. We have now crossed 11,000 pilots signed up to fly with Open Airplane. Pilots who have created profiles at openairplane.com and want to come fly with us. We've now grown to 96 locations across the U.S. We have 338 aircraft available for rent. Wow. That's like a small airline. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, pretty, it's a good start. <laughs> and, you know, we've got 33 different types of aircraft in that mix. So everything from tail draggers to light twins. Wow. Wow. I know that one of the main problem areas that you, you face was certainly ins- the insurance angle. Uh, but obviously you've, you've moved on and you've resolved that. Can you talk about how <laughs> or, or, so, or you're, you're laughing a little bit, so maybe resolved is a bit uh, misleading. But, well, but go ahead. Everyone that we talked to who was a pilot loved the idea of being able to rent everywhere they went and, and not have their pilot certificate turn off when you leave your home base. Mm-hmm. That was something that was infuriating to all of us. But they said, you know, the insurance guys will never let you do it. So we went to the insurance carriers and said, look, we have a doctrine. The way, you know, standardization and evaluation works in military flying and professional flying, we can extend that to Part 91 pilots who fly for their own business and pleasure and really lower the accident rate, reduce the risk, but increase utilization. Get more people to buy insurance, for instance. And, of course, it wasn't easy. But then one underwriter said, yeah, we'll try it. And then more and more. And now almost every underwriter in the U.S. market is aligned with open airplanes. So if you have an airplane at a flight school or a flying club, you have commercial insurance already on the airplane, you can rent that airplane to well-qualified pilots and nothing has to change. You know, it's interesting. I've been looking at uh, different areas without, throughout the country and people said, oh, I could have done that. Why hasn't anybody done it yet? <laughs> uh, you know, we, we needed to be in a place where... People were getting used to the idea of a sharing economy. One thing that's driven us from the very beginning is that overall as a culture, we're shifting. We're shifting away from the idea that ownership is the goal. And instead, people are more interested in access to the good than ownership of the good. So you see companies like Airbnb. You see people you know, sharing things versus trying to necessarily buy and own them. People want to invest in experiences, not products. And that's really been the difference in our business model that's helped us grow as quickly as we have. That's incredible. I, I really think that uh, I think it is a shift in our society, but it's incredible that you've done it. I mean, how many people just thought of that and said, oh, yeah, I can do that? But you've done it. And that's, <laughs> I commend you for what you've done. Well, it's, also, it's not just me. I mean, you've got you know, my co-founder, Adam Fast. Fast right. We've got a lot of people. A lot of them are here tonight who believed in what we did from the very beginning. It's folks like you who helped us you know, get the word out. Uh, that's still our number one biggest challenge is simply awareness. I still walk up to people wearing this t-shirt and they look at me and they say, what's open airplane? And I, I kind of, you know, look at them and say, you know, and, and wonder, you know, have you been on the internet lately? But it's, <laughs> it's, it's a thing. But then I explain. I said, look, we're here to make your pilot certificate more valuable. We make renting an airplane easier. We give you access to airplanes across the country so that you can enjoy the, the, the lifestyle of aviation. And they light up. And they get excited. And they, well, how can I join? You know, go to openairplane.com. 
and that's and that's really what's driving us forward and that's our biggest challenge and that's our biggest opportunity truly a disruptor in the industry and also an innovator and uh, somebody who's reinvented my pilot certificate because that's what i'm going to do is get checked out excellent i'm sitting in front of the uh, the map right now and i'm looking at all the different airports that you have in texas throughout florida also obviously california oregon washington I- idaho we have Oh, up in uh, Wisconsin, I see Iowa, New York area, and it's spreading. This map is like an airline map. I mean, there's so many different locations that you have throughout the country. And uh, I'm, I'm excited to see more come to my area. I mean, I feel like it was just yesterday that we were on this deck talking about this in the early phase, and there were like two or three dots on that map. <laughs> yeah, and now there's a big splotch. Exactly. You like know, Now you can pretty much plan a vacation around this. Yeah, yeah. we're actually redesigning the map because it, it, it actually wasn't a problem when we launched with six locations across the U.S., but now we're actually redesigning the map. A lot of folks want us to be able to filter by type of aircraft. And when you had just a couple of dozen aircraft across the entire country, that wasn't a problem. And now it's something that, you know, people want to say, show me the Cirruses. Show me just the light sports. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, let, let me let the map work harder for me. And that's what we're working on today. Alaska, Hawaii, you're there too. Yes. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. It's just amazing to me, Rod. The, I, I understand the sharing thing. It's just, I can't, I can think of so many FBOs that I've walked into, you know, like, well, you know, I'd like to rent this airplane. And they're like, well, we're going to have to do this checkout. This, just the idea of getting um, just your general FBO um, on, on page with what you're trying to do with the universal checkout. And I've got to say, from an education perspective and as a CFI perspective, too, I think what you guys did with that was absolutely brilliant. I think the, um, the quality of that, of that universal checkout even if you're not, well, first of all, you should be an open airplane member. But if you're not an open airplane member, just that, or if you have no intention of ever actually doing anything with it, the the process of going through your universal checkout, I think, would make every pilot in the country a better, safer pilot. And from an educational and CFI perspective, I'm I'm really impressed. First of all, that you got people on board with that, but then second of all, just the the ability you guys had to sit down and say, this is this is a product we could put together because it, it was a really um, it was a big mountain to climb, I think, and I think you did it well. Well, Rod, thanks for making pilots safer and also putting more value into my pilot certificate and those that are involved in Open Airplane. Where can they find you? We made it easy. You can go to openairplane.com on any device, a smartphone, a tablet, or a desktop computer. There's nothing to download. And you sign up for free. You can book a checkout and then go fly. And that's it. And we're on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Pretty social folks. And, Rod, you also give back. I think tonight, uh, one of the things that you're doing this evening, can we mention in the back here? Yeah, absolutely. More the merrier. And, uh, well, we're having a a few uh, beverages and uh, some food in the back of the deck here at uh, Sun and Fun Radio. And people are invited, especially folks that are involved with Open Airplane or want to know more. Come on by. Aviation is a social uh, endeavor in addition to being a bloodborne pathogen. And we really want to make sure that we spread the love. So, and the disease. So, you know, we, this is an opportunity to say thank you to all the folks that helped us spread the word, uh, to invite the pilots who have flown with us, the pilots that want to fly with us, the flight school operators that are part of the network, they'll be here, the insurance folks that help enable it, the partners, the fans, the followers. And so, you know, instead of, you know, spending 
money to do other things, we want to make sure that we invest in the community that we're building. And you've done that. I think that's terrific. And thank you so much. Is there anything else you want to maybe give a, a hint towards that might be coming, upcoming in open air playing? Guess a little nugget. Well, we did announce what open airplane was going to become it was a it was a it was kind of a secret project for a while uh and we do have other products coming we're really excited about it. and but i i can tell you that they're all going to make aviation for all of us more valuable rod rakick open airplane thanks for coming thanks for what you do for aviation making my pilot certificate more valuable Ken Cage and Rod Rakick are surely doing some great things in aviation, and uh, we love listening to them, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing what they're going to do in the future in 2017. Well, our final episode and our final pick for 2016 is episode 119, Getting the Most Out of Your Flight Review. So let's go listen to that one. Yeah, Russ, I think it was you, you sent me this email. And, he, and Russ says, uh, I'll quote you here, says, uh, ask, why don't we talk about flight reviews? And he says, specifically, as, a, as the pilot, how to make sure you're getting something out of it. It's effective, worthwhile, and educational instead of just a maneuvers practice. Those are all great questions, Russ. And Russ continues, as a CFI, I love it when prospective flight reviews come to me with specific areas they know they need work on. But unfortunately, few ever actually do. Many probably don't even realize that they can have input into the flight review. They just show up, get quiz for an hour, fly steep turns, stalls, and a few landings, and get signed off for another two years. Instead, they should help make it tailored to their needs. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight, how you can get the most out of your flight review. And Russ, this is a great question that you had, and I think we've all been through a flight review, uh, and some of us haven't had flight reviews in years, like I said, but, but to get to that point, let's first define what a flight review is. For those people that are students right now uh, or that are non-aviators right now, why, why are we discussing flight reviews, and, and what is a flight review, Russ? Well, the FAA requires that one – okay, so let, I guess let's start at the beginning here. You go through all your training. You become a private pilot or, or a sport pilot or, or, or whatever your first rating is. So you can become a private pilot, and your certificate never – expires. It's good for the rest of your life unless it's suspended or revoked or something like that. But, but in general, it's good for the rest of your life. However, the FAA requires that every 24 months you get with an instructor and do what's called a flight review. It used to be called the biennial flight review, which is still technically accurate as every two years. But the FAA remo- wanted to remove that emphasis on every two years and try to encourage this flight review to be kind of an ongoing process and hoping that people would seek out currency training and proficiency training on a regular basis. But the minimum is uh, every 24 months you go see an instructor and again, the minimum requirement is one hour of, of ground, you know, review and one hour of, of flight. But what I was alluding to in the email was that this isn't, you know, you just show up and you, 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 book, you book an airplane earlier in the day and you show up and then there you are and the, and the instructor just kind of opens up your head and dumps in some knowledge and then you go fly and you show them you can fly. It should be more than that and it should be better. And you as the pilot really can control that. And so, so my focus here is 
not just, like I said, just showing up and, and going through the motions, you're going to be with this flight instructor for at least a few hours, realistically. Make it worthwhile. And we're going to have some uh, kind of some, some topics and, how, and ideas how you can do that here in, in a few minutes. But, but make it worthwhile. Have input into this process so that you're getting something out. Like I said, you're going to be there anyway. You might as well make it interesting and enjoyable, right? Exactly. I think that's, that's a great point, Russ. So in doing that, what do you tell your students about the flight review? You, you finished up with a student that got their private. Uh, do you mention this to them and say to them, hey, listen, this is what you should be doing during your flight review. Don't look at the minimums. Look at getting something out of that. Yeah, it, it comes up. You know, when, of course, there's a bit of repeated business interest there too, right? Right. <laughs> you know, you know they, they, uh, the student gets, his, gets signed up for their check ride and hopefully I, I tell them, I, I hope this isn't the last time I see you. you know? right. I, I want to see you again. And, and, but at a minimum, you know, here in 24 months, here's, you know, here's a requirement. Of course, we've talked about uh, all the you know, Part 61 requirements and such. But... But so I try to stress to them, hey, look, this is the requirement. But honestly, you know, you're really doing well right now. You're going to be going for a check ride. If you don't fly much, even if you do in our six months or so, maybe you know, a year, hopefully less. Give me a call. Let's go. Uh, let's go polish up things and see how they're how they're how they're doing. Uh, and and quite a few now having kind of prompted that train of thought, they will. And those are the ones that when we get to the actual flight review, we'll put in that little extra effort to send me something ahead of time saying, Hey, I'd like to work on these following items. So there's a, you know, we're doing the flight review and before we get to that, there's a couple things we can substitute for a flight review before we actually talk about making that effective. What are, what are, give us an example of one thing and I'll, I'll put in one thing also if you want. Yeah, we could like go around the, <laughs> go yeah. around the host here and all one thing, right? Well, one is, of course, if you have another check ride for an additional rating, right. you get your private check ride, and uh, a year later you take an instrument check ride. That resets your flight review. So that's that's always a good idea. So th- that that flight review is uh, it, there's nothing that it quote unquote expires. It's just that you have to have a flight review. If you can't don't have a flight review, you're going to have to go up with in an airplane with a actual pilot that's a flight instructor. And and this is a point I want to make here. The reason I'm saying that and stressing that is this CFI renewal, do, that doesn't count towards your flight review. Some people have, I know that it's kind of obvious to a lot of us, but some people say, well, I just did my CFI renewal. Why can't that count? And well, that's not in an airplane. It's As a matter of fact, that's exactly what I'm doing right now. So, and Russ is telling me, no, I'm wrong. So go ahead, Russ, tell me why. No, I was actually misunderstanding you. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. I'm, I'm doing the, the, you, uh, you are correct. If the instructor is the, the, the FERC or something. Does the FERC. Exactly. So I'm doing this. Now, remember all these, these, the people that ask me these questions, right, are people I'm working with, you know, at the airline, they're saying, well, why doesn't that count? Well, it doesn't count because the, the renewal of the CFI through a FERC is, doesn't count a flight in, instructor refresher clinic or an online course. The way that you can do that, the renewal as as your flight review, is based on. Go ahead, Russ, and you're you're doing this right now, are you not? Well, yeah, that that's the uh, you talking about the uh, renewing the flight instructor uh, right. certificate. Yeah, well, I, I did it through uh, renewal. A uh, number of students I'd signed off, but uh, even that in itself doesn't count for a flight review mm-hmm. either. What would, from a flight instructor standpoint, is passing another check ride for a flight instructor rating, Perfect. which would count. But, um, but yeah, as far as how pilots can reset their flight review, of course, we talked about the uh, 
the additional rating. Of course, there's the Wings program, which uh, I'm not sure if we want to get into or, oh, you know, sure. later or something. But, uh, but there, there are certainly other ways, and we can, we can kind of go around and talk about them. Well, and, and I think, uh, Tom, you wanted to discuss. I know Tom's helped me out quite a bit with the Wings program. So, Tom, uh, that's something that I think is really important is, is doing the actual Wings uh, program, the pilot proficiency program, because that actually counts towards your flight review, does it not? It does, and and you can get all of the ground portion of uh, your flight review out of the way before you even go see a CFI, just through uh, the FAA's um, WINGS program, the Pilot Proficiency Program. And, um, you know, it, it'll put everybody up to speed. Um, there's You do it at your own pace. They encourage you. That's why they got rid of the, um, the biennial part is because they encourage you to do this throughout the year, throughout the time that you're, you're away from any type of um, – lessons or anything like that to keep refreshed and keep your head in the game, per se. Right. And and that actual flight review, this is something that I think people, when I, I promote the FAA Wings program and the flight review through that program, you can go to fasafety.gov and check it out. It's not easier than doing this one hour and one, one hour of ground. They're like, oh, this... I think that's the wrong way to look at it. I think it's more robust and it gives you a lot more experience and it's something that actually can be a little bit more difficult, but remember in that WINGS program, that flight review, and I get this question quite often, about every 6 to 12 months, is that, well, I did a flight review, Can I? why can't I get the WINGS credit for that flight review? And this is going to be a little technical, but uh, you know, within the WINGS program, it specifies exactly what you need to do for your flight review for, to account as credit within the program to get your level of WINGS. So that's really, really important that you, you do it the way that the WINGS program tells you to do that so that it counts as a flight review and counts as a level of the WINGS. Otherwise, it won't. You can have a regular flight review, but you won't get WINGS credit for it unless you do it per the specifications of that actual course within the WINGS program. So if go check it out and do exactly what it says and have your instructor sign it properly, and you're good. You've got your WINGS. You have a level of the WINGS. And, and now we're on the WINGS FA Safety Program. They, they really The WINGS program was set up, just like you said, Tom, is to get us to, to become more involved in safety but in proficiency and therefore safety. And what this does is it allows you to, to have different levels of accomplishment, which I think is really important. You, know, you want to get credit for all the work you do. So you have like the different levels of wings, like the basic, the advanced, and the master. But what's really important is there's a ground portion and there's a flight portion. The ground portion usually consists of three different credits, and those three credits are normally an hour each. So you're talking three hours of ground. And then the flight portion is three credits. Now, the credits in the air are just accomplishments. You know, you have to, you have to accomplish certain maneuvers, et cetera. But it's probably going to be more than an hour. So you're not doing the minimum of one hour of ground and one hour of flight. But with that said, that's the point I think Russ is trying to make, is that this should be more than that. This should be, and that's why we're having this discussion, this should be something that we're going to with our instructor and saying, hey, I want to get something out of our flight review. So let's talk about that, Russ. Let's talk about ways that, and, and everybody here, ways that we can actually make our flight review a little more prescient, a little more uh, specific to us. So I, I feel that, and Russ, I know you do through your comments, that we really need to put together a, a goals uh, sheet in, in our flight review beforehand and say, listen, this is what I need. You know, I need to go over, you know, I, I'm studying for my CFI renewal right now. And honestly, the VFR rules, they're tough for me. 
I have to go back and review all those things all the time because of the fact that I don't actually fly VFR that often. It's usually IFR. So I have to go in and, and look at all the different rules. Oh, what can we do at night? What can we do in Class G airspace at night? That type of thing. So I think that that's quite important. But attending the wings and attending and other things I think are, are extremely important as far as, as what you can do as far as moving forward, but also having a goals in mind and something set. Now, uh, Tom, you've, have you had the chance to do a flight review yet with uh, any students? I have, and and you know that's what I was going to say. Is our fearless leader here, Carl, uh, went ahead and did um, his wings program before uh, he actually came and saw me, and I got to do a flight review for him. <laughs> and uh, before we did the the flight portion of it, um, you know, I mean, you know, talk about prepared. He showed up with all his paperwork and all ready to go, and had all of his, um, you know, uh, the courses that he had passed for the wings program, and had what he wanted to work on that day as far as uh, his flight review. And and we talked about it and went over it, and then went out and flew it, and it was. Uh, was quite a quite interesting to watch that that entire process. Being a new CFI at the time, um, you know, it was it was a, it was a lesson for me as well as a, a good experience in, in helping Carl uh, stay current. So so it was an interesting experience. Like span on that. Did I did I scare you, Tom? Is that what you're trying to say? Oh no! no. <laughs> o- only that first. Oh, it was only the first landing. You know, when, when a guy when, when a guy in an Airbus all of a sudden tries to land a Piper Warrior, you know, I had to kind of get him down a little closer to the ground. But other than that, we were great. It's down there. Yeah. I remember that. It's down yeah, I, there. Yeah. No, no, no. We got to go down a little further. <laughs> That's funny, but it, uh, it's the audible sound he made. <gasps> <laughs> but uh, by digress. That's one of the things that I think is is cool about the wings is that all your stuff is together. It should be. You just print it out and you bring it to your instructor. And your instructor just it you know looks at it and says oh this is how we do that and then goes online and he gives you credit for that you know you request credit from the instructor and you, you move forward there but I think I think one of the things that I had mentioned in the whole flight review process is more flying the VFR doing things VFR not not talking to people and I and I do fly quote unquote VFR in uncontrolled airports at my regular job or on towered airports at my regular job. But it's so infrequent. I mean, it happens in the middle of the night usually. And, you know, I have to learn how to turn on the lights, that type of thing. So those are the things that, that I think we really need to come forward with is, is actually having that list based on on our experiences and, and our backgrounds. I know, um, let's see, I think, Victoria, did you say you were going for your flight review or you had one recently? I can't remember now. I am due for one in August. August, Okay. So, and that's because the last thing you did was a rating, and now it's 24 months, or was it because you did a flight review? Uh, flight review. I did the rating thing before, so it got reset when I did my commercial, but uh, two years after that, it was time to do another flight review. And, you know, it's funny how um, you said that you had a list of things you wanted to do versus the basic maneuvers. I got so into the pattern of doing cross country and that's all I was doing for the longest time that when I went to the BFR, I was like, I want to do stalls. I want to do steep turns. Like I want to do turns around a point. I want to do all that basic stuff that I've forgotten because all I do is go from point A to point B and land. And um, it was kind of an eye opener when I did my last flight review, how, you know, rusty you can get on this basic stuff. And, and that basic stuff being just, you're saying like stalls, steep in Yeah, kind of like what you would learn as a student pilot. A lot of people might scoff at going out and practicing stalls or steep turns or turns around a point. But, you know, there's a reason we learn them and right. there's skill involved and you learn a lot. So when you're just used to 
going to the beach and landing and going back home and landing, it's it's kind of nice to brush up on that stuff and remember, you know, neurodynamics and stuff. So for for you, this is a good example. For you, maybe going over cross-country flying wouldn't be such a great idea because you do it so much. And for you, just briefing all the different, you know, stalls, the aerodynamics for, aerodynamics for the stalls, why an airplane stalls, and also possibly go over some of the new equipment that they might be putting in angle of attack indicators, that type of thing, might be actually something good for you, you know, as far as the ground review is concerned. Yeah, it's definitely something that should probably be customized based on that person's needs. And I feel like someone should go in a bit prepared and tell the CFI, not just be like, hey, Mr. CFI, what are we going to do here? Right. You know, it's interesting. I had a, a discussion with a, a friend of mine, Jamie Beckett, out in uh, Winter Haven. This was years ago, and he was giving a review to somebody who does all these steerman checkouts and steerman rides and that type of thing. And and he uh, he actually said to him, he says, listen, we're getting out of here. We're going to go on this airplane, and we're going to take a radio because this guy has never talked on the radio in a long time. That's another thing, too. Some of us, and honestly, I'm that type of person, really don't like to fly in airports where I have to talk on the radio. Uh, that that could be either because we have maybe a fear of the radio and, and the mic fright, et cetera, or it might be because you know we, we just want to relax and, and we really don't want to say things on the radio. Well, what happens is, and, and this happens to all different levels of pilots, especially myself, is that I forget, you know, when should I call downwind? When should I call in the pattern? That type of thing. So that's that's what something uh, Jamie did. He actually took this person out and said, hey, let's go talk on the radio. And let's talk on the radio at a tower and explain when we need to call and what type of calls we need. What, let's look at the different airspace here because we don't, you know, usually go into controlled airspace because he doesn't need to. He's just doing rides, that type of thing. So there's that, that type of thing is, is really, really important. But I think, I think too, the, the other thing is that when we do go for a flight review, we have to keep in, in mind certain parts of that. There's the, like you were saying, the stalls and, and the knowledge and the physical part of actually flying that, the, the proficiency there. But how about, how about the mental side of this? How about the, the mental side of, of actually understanding the airplane and the aircraft and the systems that we have? Uh, and, and the, and the actual airplane that we're flying, I remember, uh, Tom and I went up flying. I can't remember what system was in the airplane, but I, I hadn't looked at it in a while. And, uh, oh no, I know what it was. It was the, uh, the 172 actually you took me up. It wasn't actually during the flight review and, uh, it was a G1000 and Tom actually was good at just going over that with me and saying, I said, Tom, Hey, listen, you know, what, what is this system? And can we get, maybe go over that? Because planes are also different these days. Uh, the great thing was that now Tom had known that in, beforehand and did go over a couple things with me. And that did, did help a little bit. But again, it's, it's one of these systems where you might, you could go down a, a heck of a rabbit hole as far as doing a flight review and spending time on just that one specific item and, uh, and not, and, and nothing, and nothing more, which, uh, which actually could be a lesson in itself and not just a, a flight review. So, uh. Anyway, Tom, did you you had something to add to that, or, or Rusty, you had something to add to that? Let's see. The uh, sorry about that. But uh, anyway, the uh, the other thing too is the other part of that is uh, aeronautical decision making. Uh, that's another really important part of of the uh, of the whole flight review. Something that we we really need to pay attention to. That's that's quite for sure on there. But uh, anyway. 
well, so anyway, uh, Russ, go ahead and, and uh, go ahead and uh, add to this. I just wanted to. I don't want to take over all. The, I know it's your topic here, so I want you to add a couple <laughs> more things to this. <laughs> but we got plenty of time to. So no, go, no, uh, you're doing you're doing a good job, Carl. Yeah, doing a good job. sorry about that. Uh, yeah, I, I kind of wanted to to discuss you know, how I how I approach this with my students and and kind of from start to finish a little bit and what they can expect. I mean, you know, it's unfortunate as a flight instructor. Sometimes I do get you know the calls. Hey. Uh, it's the thirtieth of the month. Can you do a flight review with me? You know, this afternoon. <laughs> you know, and there's not a whole lot of time to prepare. And yes, I'll, I'll do it, but that, that's not really my my preference. What I'd prefer is that the the pilot schedule with me. You know, a, you know, a week at least is pretty good. You know, in advance, and I'll give them kind of kind of this basic rundown. First, I want you to I want you to come with come to me with topics. Uh, like Victoria said. You know, hey, I haven't done steep turns and stalls in a while. So can we do it? Absolutely. I'll definitely work those in. Because I have the things that I am going to insist we work on, emergency procedures, uh, aeronautical decision-making, just like you said, Carl, um, a few things like that. But but the rest is pretty open. And and the CFRs are, are really, <laughs> really vague as to what's required. Uh, so, I, so I ask, please come to me with topics and get them to me ahead of time. And... <laughs> Some some of them kind of take this maybe to the extreme, and they they kind of play uh, stump the the chump stump the CFI there beforehand. You know, sending me emails and stuff. Hey, what about this? What about this? Hey, let's talk about this rule or this or whatever. Hey, I don't understand this latest uh, thing that came out, but that's you know, make me work before the uh, flight review. That's fine. I guess you you earn your money. I earn my money that way, right? <laughs> but uh, but but that's fine. That's good. Uh, but I, I want to know both what kind of flying you do normally do. Because it's important to cover some areas like that. Like if Victoria was coming to me for a flight review, there's a couple things I would probably cover on cross-country flying just to make sure that, you know, she hasn't forgotten certain things uh, since her training or whatever. But so I want to know what you normally do, uh, but also what you don't normally do. And especially if you have some items, what scares you? You know, what what really frightens you in the airplane? And, and I say that in a kind of a spooky way, but... But a lot of us don't really like stalls too much. And if you don't like something, you're not going to do it just by yourself out there you're having fun, right? Mm-hmm. So, okay, you don't like stalls. You know, let's go do some. And I present this as this. You will hear this from many instructors. This is not a check ride. We know that. But I want to approach it that this is not even me evaluating your skills. I mean, yes, it kind of is. But... But approach it more like, hey, you're going to an instructor. You're going to have a chance to learn something. And you're going to have a chance to practice something, knock off some cobwebs. So let's do that. And I find that when you approach it from that standpoint, people are a lot more receptive, I guess. It's not a, you know adversarial, hey, I got I to gotta perform real well so he'll sign me off. No, no, no. We're going to work on stuff. And if, if things aren't quite up to speed, we'll get you there. It's no problem. But I, so let's talk a little bit about the ground part. All right. Require an hour on the ground. Usually, that's that's pretty sufficient, unless the unless the person's been out of flying for a while, and then we might uh, talk a lot about new rules and such. But I'm not one of the types that likes to go down the the list of requirements. Okay, what what what's your proficiency requirements? Three takeoffs, landings, last ninety days, carry passengers. You know, this kind of thing. Not not so much rote memorization. But I want you to, if you can come with kind of thought provoking questions, or I can ask some. One of my favorite questions I just did this a week or two ago was. So the ceiling is 1,100 overcast. Can you do pattern work? And it 
seems like a fairly straightforward question, but once you start getting into VFR cloud clearance requirements, what class of airspace are you in, E versus G or D or, or whatever, and then, then, then they arrive at an answer, and then you say, well, what about minimum safe altitude? How high are you above the ground when you're okay? Well, you're allowed. Are you allowed to be at? so? And that, that could be a ten minute discussion right there. And we're covering all kinds of areas of of Part ninety one, which is what we're required to do in a flight review. So it's not just going down a list of, of items. Uh, so that's that's kind of like uh, scenario based type training. I think is yeah of, that you're yeah. putting together, and that's that's pretty brilliant there. If um, if it's and along that exactly right, if it's an IFR pilot. And this is not an IPC, which is a whole def- separate thing. Maybe we'll do in another show. Oh, definitely. <laughs> but, but, uh, but, but if it's an IFR pilot, I might word the question, you've got a, you know, an 800-foot overcast ceiling, and you can't get a clearance on the ground. Can you depart? And when, how are you going to get your clearance in the air and the various rules? Same, kind of same line of thinking, but it touches a bunch of different subjects. But So we'll go through some of those things. And, and if uh, I had another guy who he was going to – he needed his flight review so he could go buy an airplane in South Carolina and fly it back. Okay. Well, why don't you come to the flight review with your flight plan for however, however you fl- plan a flight, whether it's paper or for flight or whatever, and we'll go over that. And that'll be the basis for our discussions about airspace, about, you know, what, oh, you got a MOA along your way. How do you find out that information? Are you allowed to go through there? This kind of thing. So we'll make it based on what they need. And, uh, Tom, does that sound kind of kind of similar to the kind of thing you're doing? Oh, absolutely. I'm just sitting here enthralled, and and you know, I've, I've got my list of uh, things too, and I'm checking them off as you're going over them. You know, yeah. um, and and I'm going to wait till you're done, and then I'll cover the things that are on my list that you didn't cover, but I, I don't think there's going to be much left over. <laughs> one co- one comment I do have though, you mentioned rusty pilots. You know, somebody that comes in that may not have flown for a while. And, uh, you know, I've had guys show up with, with that as well that, you know, hey, I've, I've been out of the game for 20 years. Can I, you know, what do I need to get current again? You know, and, and uh, you know, my, my basic rhetoric to them has been, you know, it's basically um, one hour of, uh, of training for every year, both flight and ground for every year away from. And, and I use that just as an average. You know, it's, it's nothing that's set in stone. But generally, you know, once people get back out in the plane again, they, they realize how far away they are from it. And, and when they start seeing some of the new rules and some of the things that's happened in the past 20 years as far as airspaces and things like that, they realize that, okay, yeah, I've, I've got a lot to learn here to get back you know, to some level of proficiency. And like I said, just as a basic guideline for, for uh, getting back for somebody who's been away for a while, uh, that, that one hour for one year away. Yeah, that's, that's definitely a good, uh, good uh Pretty good number that you threw out there, I think. Uh, pretty pretty average, you're right. And some people do it faster and some will take longer. But, yeah, it's just a good expectation anyway. Yeah, I think so. Uh, then I move on talking more about some of the things I like to see uh, in the flight. Whatever they've come to me with is great. Uh, we will definitely work on that. I'm not going to say, no, we can't, <laughs> we can't do steep turns because it doesn't fit my schedule or something. No, of course not. But, of course, we want to we work on some emergency-type stuff. And... Maybe in some a little bit different scenarios than uh, than than they're than they're used to. Maybe with uh, you know your private pilot training, what happens? You're flying over a field, the instructor pulls a throttle, throttle back to idle, and there you are, right? You, you pick out your landing point. Well, you, you know maybe a partial power. Well, what are you going to do? Kind of that aeronautical decision making you talked about, Carl, and 
how are you going to handle different scenarios a little bit different? And Carl, you had a question. Yeah, actually, the the question was you're going through these scenarios, and honestly, I, I started getting a little nervous. I was like, oh my gosh, you know, I, I'm doing a flight review. For some reason, in my mind, I was starting to get slightly nervous, and I'll tell you why. I was thinking about my career, and I'm like, oh no, you know, if if I don't pass this, and all these things that you're going over and about to go over, this is going to reflect poorly on my record, is it not? And the answer to that is what? There's no record of this. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it, you're absolutely right. I mean, if, you know, and it happens, you know, you don't have a good day or like Tom was talking about, you know, you haven't flown for 20 years, you're not going to do it in an hour. So what do we put in the book? We put, you received uh, 1.2 hours of dual flight instruction and you covered these areas, steep turnstiles and emergency procedures, and there's just no sign off. Yeah. So there's no, you know, we'll get that next time or we'll get the, the, the time after that. There's no... Uh, no failure then. Yeah, no, no black no marks negative, okay. uh, in, in, you know, that, the, uh, that we're sending to the FAA to, to keep in your record or something. No. That's an important point. That's an important point. Vic, you, you, you had a question, right, Vic? Yeah. If, if I do my uh, flight review in a helicopter, right. does that mean I'm current to fly a fixed-wing aircraft? Right. Yep. You have your flight review done, but, you don't, but you're not current. You're not current, yes, but you <laughs> so, have a flight review. But you yeah, have a flight review, right, yeah. yeah. That, that's an important point. So don't, the, kind of tricky. I, I hate people to go out and do their, their review in their helicopter, and then they go and fly an airplane the next day. You aren't legal to fly the, the airplane, but you do have your flight reviews on. So that's an important – I'm glad you brought that up. That's a very important important point there. So, uh, so yeah, it has to be in, in an aircraft, and uh, also the person that's giving the flight review is obviously rated, that type of thing. But that is your flight review, and uh, and now you need to, you know – that move forward, you know, with the different, and there are different things that are prescribed for that flight review. So you're do, doing it in, uh, I don't know, in like a glider. There's different things that that you can do as far as uh, the portion of the flight review in that glider. And I can't remember off off the top of my head, but it's uh, it's like uh, I can't remember exactly. But the but anyway, that's a that's a really really important thing to stress there. So so it's the same as say you went out and got you have your single engine license and then you got your helicopter commercial say. Then there you go. You have a flight review, so you're good to go. It's kind of similar there. You know, it's in a different you know category class, but you still have a flight review completed, and then you can move forward. But you still need to make sure you're current in everything, every type of aircraft too. For instance, right now I'm in. I'm not current in a single engine aircraft. I can't fly with passengers in a single engine aircraft, but I'm current in a multi engine aircraft. It's those are currency requirements as opposed to a flight review requirement. So uh, so that was good. I'm glad you brought that up, Vic. Awesome, really really good question. Anyway, so uh, so does, does I'd like that... to say a little bit of common sense goes into that yeah. answer as well. Yeah, you did your flight review in maybe your helicopter, but you haven't flown um, fixed wing in a while. But even if you're not carrying passengers, it might not be a bad idea to bring a CFI up with you if you haven't flown fixed wing in a few years just to do a quick checkout. Oh, sure, sure. I mean, I had a, a student. He was uh, he's got five thousand hours in a C one thirty, and he was going to take his family up in a Warrior. And I had to run out and tell him, hey, listen, you can't do that. You don't have a single-engine pilot certificate. And he's like, oh, my gosh, you're right. You know, and I'm glad I caught him because sometimes we, we logically think it's an airplane. It's a big airplane. We can fly in the other one. I've done a flight review and a multi, but I don't have my, my certificate. I only have a student certificate, and I'm moving forward. Well, I'm trying, don't have a student, but I'm, I'm trying to get my single-engine certificate. So that's important. A really good point there. So I'm glad we clarified that. Awesome stuff. Anyway, sorry we digressed on that one, That's but that is something we really need to make sure of, that you get your flight review, but you also have to make sure you're current in other aircraft. So anyway, sorry, uh, Russ, go ahead and continue with that. 
Oh yeah, yeah. It's the, I was. It's talked about the uh, the whole emergency practice. Some I like to introduce, and and you know, if they took their check ride, say maybe their private check ride ten years ago, fifteen years ago, twenty years ago, some of the topics have changed a little bit in, in the check ride. So, for example, emergency descent is one that wasn't on there twenty years ago. So if I'm getting a flight review candidate who uh, who took a strike ride 20 years ago, he's never probably thought of an emergency descent. And by that, we're talking about, you know, your how do you, how do you get down as quickly as you can? Your engine's on fire, or your uh, you know you lose pressurization, or you lose uh, you know your oxygen runs out if you're higher up, or some you know maybe you're flying a turbocharged airplane. So. Uh, so we might cover that. Uh, in addition, there's all kinds of special emphasis areas in the front of the of each practical test standard that provide some some good material to go off. And aeronautical decision making is one of them. Uh, checklist usage, runway incursion, collision avoidance, stall spin awareness, all these things. Kind of a lot that we talked about already. So we might look at some of those. Um, Crosswind landings. I know a couple uh, stuck mic episodes ago we talked about crosswind landings. So, <laughs> so uh, it was probably two episodes ago, I imagine. And and I had mentioned that here in Oklahoma, well, wind is generally down a runway, and when it's not, it's because it's thirty knots from the side or something. So, so we uh, so if we get a good chance with you know maybe ten knots, fifteen knots of crosswind, we'll, we'll definitely take the opportunity to to get that done. When's the last time you landed with no flaps, or if that's your normal ones. The last time you landed with full flaps, uh, whichever one you don't do normally. How about how about a downwind landing? You ever landed downwind for training? You know, with a tailwind. Well, you might need to do it someday. So let, let's give it a shot and see how it looks different. How about you know if if your elevator jams or your, your ailerons jam? How are you going to work on that? How about a boarded takeoff? So you get to ten feet above the runway and you, and you lose the engine. What are you going to do? So these are all things we can work and practice that aren't normally incorporated in the, into training. So this is a great time to do it. I, I think, as you can tell, I think the flight review is fantastic. I love doing flight reviews as a flight instructor. Like I, I get to, you know, go completely off the reservation with <laughs> with what I need to cover because it's not targeted towards this check ride. You know, we're not concerned about how many hours it can take to perfect steep turns, right? Right. So yeah, we get to have a good time and work on what we want. Interesting. Yeah. The hey, you know, one one other question though, you, you talked about uh, you know doing I, I don't know like crosswind landings, that kind of thing. Uh, going back to the, the flight instructor and say I've already done my FERC and I come to you and I say to you, hey, by the way, I just did my FERC. Do I need to do the ground school with you? And actually, if it's up to the instructor, by the way, and the, the point I'm going to make is I'll answer the question there is no, you don't have to do that. But I think Rust, correct me if I'm wrong, you would have a dialogue with me, of course, I would hope and say, hey, listen, when did you do your FERC? Did you just do it yesterday or did you do it 12 months ago? That type of thing. And, and say, yeah, are you really up on all this stuff? Because that can substitute for that one hour of ground school. So uh, so we can actually, no matter what, Russ, I think your answer is going to be, it doesn't matter. We're going we're gonna to do something that's outside the box. I'm, is that, am I correct in saying that? I, I like to think so, but you're absolutely right. Yeah. If, if the flight instructor has been if done has done that FERC, which is you know, I forget the number six allegedly sixteen, 16 hours or something, right? Uh, it's yeah. taken me a long time. Yeah, right. <laughs> it really it's the one I'm using, but anyway, yeah, I'm it, not going to review it later. <laughs> it's a lot longer than one hour, so yeah. it sure <laughs> yeah, so is. That, that's that's generally pretty good, but yeah, we, we might cover a couple things, but we'll move from there. Awesome. Anyway, what's the next thing you had on your list there, uh, Russ? Well, I. 
there's a advisory circular, mm-hmm. 61-98. I'm sure everybody's going to go download it and read it right away. Okay. Well, we'll have a <laughs> and, link to it, by the way. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, current revision is... 61... C, I think. 61-98C. And that is the uh, FA's guidance on flight reviews. And it talks about a lot of the stuff that we've kind of talked about so far, uh, including some of the special interest items they have in there. And one of their ideas is this idea of stabilized approaches, right? And this is big in the airline world, Carl. I mean, you know all about this oh. and about being on airspeed and on altitude for miles before you land, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, we, we should and can do that in light aircraft, too. I mean, I, I owned an aircraft for 11 years. I owned a Warrior. And after 11 years, I could pretty much land that thing from any reasonable configuration of of speed on downwind and altitude and whatever just because I was so used to it. But that wasn't really the safest way to operate either, though, right? right. So you know, I could do it, but that doesn't mean it's a good idea. So this is a concept of stabilized approaches and you know steady descent rates and on-your-target airspeed, and that, that's something we, we can definitely work on in, uh, in the landing practice. Uh, they stress concentrating a little bit on automation failure. We've had mm. a lot of situations recently where people have kind of lost control of the autopilot, you know, essentially. What's this thing doing now? Right. Well, there are different failure modes for any autopilot and, uh, or other automation. So kind of, kind of cover those if, if the aircraft is so equipped. And then they go on to recommend some of the slow flights and stalls and stuff that we've already talked about. And then, of course, discuss the, the wings program too. But it's, it's a good kind of overview of a flight review. Um, it's really more, I think, oriented towards the instructors. But it's, it's some good information for the pilots as well. Cool. And that's, uh, again, what's that, again, the uh, reference? Uh, it's AC61-98, Charlie. Okay, and that's ninety-eight, Charlie. We'll definitely put that in there. Yeah, awesome. That's uh, that's a good, a great resource for instructors. But I, I think uh, all students should also read that before they go to the flight review and say, "Hey, should I? This is what I should do." That type of thing. You know, you're talking about automation, and uh, you know, I can attest to that. We, uh, the plane that I fly for work, there's so many times that we sit there and say, "What, what is it doing now, and why is it doing that?" You know, you sit there and it's a highly automated aircraft, and and if you don't know how to to jump in there and and say, hey, listen, I need to I need to interact with this and either turn some of the automation off or or do something different with the automation, uh, you could you know go down a rabbit hole and, and get yourself in, in quite a bit of, of uh, trouble there. Uh, but uh, but Russ, those, those are all great things. Is is there anything else you wanted to add to that, Russ? I, I think I've said enough for one for no, no, no. One, this, uh, episode. No. This is awesome. I, I think this is cool what you do. I think the the attitude is the best is the most important thing, of of wanting your students to learn something and to learn something new and also thinking outside the box. And and what's cool is you can kind of tell in what you, the way you say it is that you kind of you want to make it fun and you know from the get go you tell them listen you can't fail this and. Uh, you know, you you will you will complete the flight review eventually. So, um, well, that's that's the whole idea, Carl. And you're absolutely right. And I have, I've talked to people who are I, I don't I wouldn't say scared of the flight review necessarily, but I mean they're they're buying books and studying up for that. They're legitimately worried about it. And man, it's it's just a good chance to go fly and learn something new. Oh yeah, 
And it's awesome too because it, like you said, it doesn't go on your. I mean, go on your record. Uh, I think a lot of folks that are here working professionally might think that, oh my gosh, if you have that type of an event at work, it's a different story because you need additional training, and that goes on your record now because of all the new rules. Uh, where this is, if you need additional training, uh, that can be addressed. So that that would actually be my next question for you before I ask you know Tom what else he has on his list is what do you do. In the case of a student uh, or anybody that comes to you and and they don't quite uh, complete what you feel is a flight review, in other words, you feel they need more practice, how do you address that issue? Well, fortunately, generally, at least in my experience, when someone doesn't meet the standards, they they know it. That <laughs> you know, it, it wasn't. Just they, you know, missed a turn by a few feet or something, they, you know, but you know, they, they bounced the landing halfway down <laughs> the runway and then had to go around or something. So they, they know it. And so we just say, hey, well, you know, let's see if we can get together tomorrow or, or, or something and we'll, and we'll, we'll kind of wrap this up and take it from there. So that's all we can do. And, and you can continue until you run out of time. And, uh, and that's kind of cool because if you have someone who's really sharp, uh, and that you complete everything. That's the other thing you can do. I know I do that in my flight reviews at work is I turn to the instructor and say, hey, can I see this if we have time? I'll really work hard to try to get through everything. Can we maybe do this, this, and this? And they're usually really cool about it, and most instructors really want to show you something neat and different and, and new. So that shouldn't be an issue with going out there and asking your instructor, hey, can we do this if I get everything done? And I'm sure you know, Rush, you're like that, and I'm like that, and Tom's like that. You know, we all want our students to have fun, and we want them to learn something new also. So that's quite important, too. So, uh, Tom, what else did you have on, on your list? I just have, like, one other thing, and then I'm, I've, I've got, and we, got, we can get on to our picks of the week after that. Right. Um, and, and, you know, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate Russ's enthusiasm with this, you know, and I hope that I uh, exude some of that with uh, my students as well, because you're right. This is the fun part of being a flight instructor is, is um, being outside the box just a little bit, you know, and, uh, and was all really great stuff. Um, Russ and, and, and very thorough, too. Um, the only two things that I picked up out of there was um, one of them was out of the documents. There's also an FAA guidance document uh, mm -hmm. uh, on conducting an effective flight review. And I bring that up only it, it's obviously very helpful for a CFI, but it's also very helpful for a student to be able to go out there and look, you know, what is the CFI doing to try to create that flight review? And, and what are the things that he's going to be looking for? And it, it helps them be proactive to have that information to move forward with um, with getting their flight review, you know, by, by keeping their head in the game. And then um, let's see, one other thing um, we went through, you know, the scheduling and recency, and I, I really liked about the, the likes and dislikes of a pilot, you know, something that they're scared of. I'd, I'd like to know that information. That was a, a nugget I took from Russ tonight. Um, a flight plan, um, one of the other things that came up for me too is like I like to know my students' goals. Where, where are they going? What do they like to do? And and uh, what are they um, what are they planning on doing? What do they want to do with their uh, their ratings? And uh, are they looking for an aviation career? Are they you know do they want to expand in some way, shape, or form? And and that usually helps guide me as well. Um, other than that, you know, Russ, you were pretty thorough, and I don't think I have anything else. I'm sure that listening to uh, them talk or all this talk about uh, your flight review, you've learned something about what you can do different in your next flight review and try to get more out of your next flight review. Well, of course, this is a special episode of the Stuck Mike Avcast, so there are no picks of the week. You know, we really hope you enjoyed listening to the Stuck Mike Avcast as much as we've enjoyed bringing these episodes together. 
This podcast is all about you, and your feedback is much appreciated at the Stuck Mike Avcast. We are about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. We look forward to bringing you more informative and entertaining content in the new year. Before we close this episode and open 2017, I want to challenge you to do one thing this year to help promote aviation. We challenge you to do one thing this year towards sharing what you have learned about flying, or why you live to fly, or why you love to fly. Share aviation with your friends, family, or even strangers who show an interest. We are all ambassadors of general aviation. Let's let the world know why we are learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. All of us at the Stuck Mike Avcast hope you have a wonderful new year. We can't wait to talk to you next episode. Safe flying. You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast. Members of the Stuck Mike Abcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Avcast is an aviation podcast and a Valeri Aviation Corporation production.